and welcome back to Things Are Going Great For Me, a podcast about the arts and the entertainment business. My name is Jay Claude Deering. I'm an actor and a comedian. If you're returning to the show, I'm absolutely thrilled. And if you're new here, welcome. Pull up a chair and get comfortable because we want you all to enjoy yourselves. You can follow me, your host, at Deering on both Twitter and Instagram. And you can follow our show handle on Instagram at Things Are Going Great For Me. There you'll find our link tree that has links for our Patreon and some cool Things Are Going Great For Me swag. Hey, the holidays are here. Why not treat yourself and a family member to some dignified swag? We've got hoodies, t-shirts, and tote bags, so check them out and listen in comfort and style. You can find all our products in our link tree on our show Instagram page at things are going great for me on our link tree. You'll also find our Patreon, which features additional interview coverage from our season one, season two, and season three guests, including our bonus Quarpod series in which I ask guests about how they adjusted to life in quarantine and how the pandemic is continuing to change life in the entertainment industry. Our Patreon is a vital part of making this show happen. So if you'd like to support us, give us a subscribe on there. You can check us out on Patreon directly at patreon.com slash things are going great for me. And by the way, we're delighted to welcome back our sponsor for this series, Icelandic Glacial, the purest tasting water on earth, sourced from the legendary Ulfus Spring in Iceland, naturally filtered through ancient lava rock, and certified carbon neutral for both product and operation. You are what you drink. Be exceptional. Icelandic Glacial natural spring water sourced from Iceland available on Amazon and at local retailers near you. Today's first guest is Michael Terry. Mike is an actor who played Wendell Bray for nine seasons on the hit Fox procedural Bones. He's also recurred on NBC's Grimm and CW's Roswell, New Mexico. His other film and television appearances include Criminal Minds, NCIS, NCIS New Orleans, CSI, Castle, Without a Trace, and the indie film The Archer. These days, Mike is also a busy producer. His producing credits include the 26th and 27th Screen Actors Guild Awards. He's also the executive producer of the number one comedy podcast and perhaps soon to be the biggest podcast in the world, Smartless, with hosts Jason Bateman, Will Arnett, and Sean Hayes. Earlier this month, Smartless had on President Joe Biden as a guest. Mike is a longtime friend and just good vibes, and I loved having this catch up with him. I'll be speaking with Mike in a few minutes. And a little bit later, you'll also get my interview with Reem Idan. Reem is an Iraqi-American comedian, writer, actress, and digital content creator known for her unique brand of, quote, Muslim annual humor. She's performed at venues and colleges across the U.S., Europe, Japan, and the Middle East, and opened for comics including Eliza Schlesinger and Arsenio Hall. Reem is an alumni of the 2020 NBC Late Night Writing Workshop, the MGM Writing Program. She's also a two-time scholarship recipient at the Groundlings and has worked with brands like Hoo Ha Ha and Sway Media to elevate female perspectives and stories. Stick around for her interview. I promise you, you're not going to want to miss it. But before we move on to interviews, I'm totally psyched to welcome back my producer and co-host, Winston Carter. Hello, I'm here. <laughs> Am I coming in clear? <laughs> you are. So this is All the right, first time we've done a season where we've headed into Thanksgiving week. Mm -hmm. How's your Thanksgiving week going? Uh, my Thanksgiving week's going great. I haven't had pumpkin pie yet. I have not had eggnog or pumpkin pie yet this holiday season. And boy, oh boy, when I start having them, it's going to be too much. I got to uh, tell you, I could take them or leave them. What? 
Yeah, really? I mean eggnog. If you put a little, you spike that eggnog, then then we're talking. Oh no, I ju- I will. Uh, the problem I I've been very I've really weaned myself off of drinking dairy over the past couple years, and uh, boy oh boy, eggnog is gonna destroy my system. <laughs> I'm gonna See, I'm gonna have to give myself a week where I don't leave my house, and all I'm doing is drinking eggnog. Oh lord. Don't be in that house, everybody else. Yeah, uh, do not, no, do not come near me. You spike, honestly, if you spiked pumpkin, pumpkin pie, I'd eat pumpkin pie as well. Oh, that'd be good. That'd be a little pumpkin Spiked's pie pumpkin shake. Pie. Spi- I've been crushing pumpkin pie. this ice cream. This There's a pumpkin and cheesecake ice cream that I have demolishing this Sounds interesting. season, though. I'll, oh, I'll give so it. Good. I'll give it so that. Good. Sounds if you have a Ralph, if you have a Safeway brand near you, is that Ralph? Ralph's a Safeway, right? Yeah, Kroger. Same Kroger. company. Kroger. Kroger. I think so. Got it. Yeah, if you have one of those, they have a pr- private selection pumpkin ice cream with little cheesecake bites. Oh my good lord! Ugh. <laughs> Ugh. So, so but not for you because you don't like them, I guess. I they're they're not my favorite flavors. No, okay. no. But everything else about Thanksgiving, including turkey. Okay. You love turkey. You're the only person who's like, uh, sign me up for some of that turkey. The, yeah, the only person in the world who, you know, and you're it's like, an acquired taste, but I, with my refined palate, yeah. I enjoy it. Turkey. That's the, this is the most Northeastern take you've ever had. You've never <laughs> felt more like you're like, it, this might be adjacent very pedestrian of me, but yeah, turkey is, uh, in my household, quite the delicacy. What's your um, what's your go to side? I do want to hear this before. I know we have uh, to move on. I know there's important things to talk about. Important, I want to hear very important things. Um, I like uh, I like yams. I like uh, okay. Do you put marshmallow on them or no? I'll take them either way. Okay, I like uh, I do like them with marshmallow. It is nice. A little bit of dessert as with gra- yeah, that yeah. gets gravy on it. It yeah. shouldn't be good. It I never there. know what the difference is between sweet potatoes and yams. To me, they taste same. exactly the same. The, the, the they same. are the same. It's just, I mean, same, it's a different word for the same thing. I think it is technically a different root vegetable, but they're like, but it's a festive way. So to say identical. Yeah. So I think, I think yams, I do think yams are inherently a little sweeter maybe. Okay. But I think they're like, in my mind, they're essentially the same. Like the same way, like I know people will be like, well, sweet potato pie and pumpkin pie are different. I'm like, are they? Like, I know they're different things. <laughs> they look identical and they have the exact same spices. One is slightly different. They're almost like, like people oh, who are like, oh, I love that, sweet that potato pie, I hate pumpkin pie. Yeah. I'm like, get out of here. <laughs> get out of here. I don't know. It would be night and day to me. If I if I A-B tested those two pies you, and it just served you the both of one, you'd be like, <laughs> these one's much better. And I'd be like, this is the same pie. These are identical. We should try that. Uh, yeah. How about for you? What's your go-to side? Um, I okay. So this is this is specific. This is like uh, okay. Personally, I think if I'm talking normal sides, it's I think stuffing is so good. It's it's savory mm-hmm. bread pudding, and we never eat it <laughs> with this one time of year. And it's like yeah, of course, bread with a bunch of spices is delicious. Oh my god, it's amazing. But the one I really value, the thing I'm I'm genuinely excited, most excited about is my family makes what we call Lebanese stuffing, which is hashway, which is like a, wow. a bird stuff. It's the rice. If you've ever had, like, you've had this. We're Arabs. The uh, ground beef, rice, and it's either almonds or pine nuts kind of dish. At, like, I have had a dish like that. Mm-hmm. Sure. So uh, that's, we call it Lebanese stuffing. And it wasn't until years later, because we always had it at Thanksgiving, that I realized, oh, this is a thing that like Egyptians and other Middle Easterners will stuff a small bird with. It is literally stuffing. 
Uh, wow. But then they eat it. If you eat it outside of a river, it's called hashway. And uh, we, my man, when I tell you, like, if you think that mashed potatoes are a good gravy vehicle, this rice is where it's oh at. Oh my, because it's just it gets <laughs> in between every grain, and it almost because you can you can put probably by weight one part gravy, one part hash, and they'll still feel solid. Oh. Unbelievable. I always think I'm doing the, the right thing when I'm having rice instead of potatoes, but I guess it I mean it's kind of a wash, I suppose, equal, right? Equal, like equally bad. Equally bad. Equal bad. Yeah. Yeah. I, I will don't know say why rice rice got a better reputation at some point. There's less feels like like butter and cream crammed into rice. Whereas I think mashed potatoes, like they're so good. They're they're really incredible, right? But it's like also, yeah, I'm eating like two sticks of butter and <laughs> sure. a pound of cream mixed into these yeah of course they're great i love i love this holiday oh i do oh, oh mm, i'm excited so reem and i talked about uh burning man um she's got a bunch mm-hmm. of times she called burning man the internet in 4d have you ever gone no let me listen i can <laughs> solidly say burning man is not for me <laughs> i don't think it's uh, for me either i, I think i don't think i, I can I, hack it i think i would really enjoy burning man for about three hours. I think three <laughs> hours of walking around, I would like, I would like to, what I would like to do is get on I think, a bike. I think 15 minutes in the sun yeah. and I'd be done. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think, I just think it's like, I, the concept sounds great, but I think in execution, the idea of being covered in dust and filthy, it, it just does not appeal to me. And the, the idea of seeing a bunch of cool art and like a world where everyone barters and, you know, all the like, and everyone brings their things. That, that's all right. sounds great. Right. But then but I know me, but then back to the mm-hmm. hotel, right? Yeah. Oh, oh, dude. Fl- here's the deal. Let's helicopter in right. land. We'll have you a couple bikes Bezos. waiting for us. Yeah. We ride around the playa. We see some stuff. We stop into the sex dome for like two seconds just to check it out. <laughs> just to, just to look. Just, just to look. You, if you're going to go to Burning Man, you got to check out the sex, the dome. sex dome. And then, and then we we take we ditch we literally ride towards the helicopter ditch them while riding and then get on the helicopter and fly away and we go to what reno reno's close to there sure yeah and we go have a good meal barstow we go have some steaks yeah sure that sounds great we'll do it you don't think it's for you i don't think it's for i don't think it's for you either honestly no it is i think you're right no way i i bring golf clubs and people would kick me out immediately um I think so. Between talking with Reem about Burning Man and talking with Mike Terry about meditation, this was like a very podcasty, yeah, podcast episode. Mm-hmm. You know, very mindfulness focused. Mindfulness focused. What am I doing mm. to fix myself? Sort of stuff. This is important to people in middle age. This should be. Yeah. Yeah. We're not trying to like. We all like. I think you hit a point where like you're like. Well, I either know how to how to feed myself and keep a roof over my head. And then it's like, well, what an hour are the other problems? <laughs> All right, folks, without further ado, here now is the kind, funny, uh, just a good dude, Michael Grant Terry. Man, I was thinking about, I was like, I was 19. 
That's what I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, yeah. I think so I we, was 19 or 20. I was one, one of those two. All I, I know is that I, I had a fake. I had a fake ID. I know that, so I wasn't <laughs> 21. <laughs> How old are you now? I'm 38. Oh yeah, you are younger than me. Yeah. Um, How old are you? I'm 40. Okay. I'm Oof, 40. That's four, that's rough, man. Four, wow, you're 40 and a half. Yeah, I know. We're getting back into the halves and the quarters at this point. <laughs> I'm 38. Yeah. I'm 38 and three quarters. Yeah, so, so I'm about it, to be 39. 39 was hard for me. I got to yeah. be honest. 39 was hard. And then 40, I was told by a buddy of mine who's also 40. He was like, once you're 40, you're 40. Now that I am 40, I'm like, fuck, I'm fucking 40. I, see, so I, don't I, actually, don't know. I don't mind it. I, you know, honestly, man, like I've been excited to get older, especially for acting purposes. Like I think that for me, I, I feel like I was stuck in this period of like, well, he's not really like a, in mm. college anymore. And he's also, he can't play a dad. And I'm like, yeah, but I am a fucking dad in real life. Right, right. So it's like, it's this weird, I, I've been excited for a while. And then you start getting like man titties. And then I'm like, eh, I'm not so excited about that as much. <laughs> I don't know how to get rid of them. Um, oh my God. I've tried everything. Um, yeah, I think like, yeah, I think I've had a little bit of the same issue. Like, folks have said, like, how do you not age? And I'm right. like, well, shit. Like, I've, I would like to age more because, you know, there are those those great roles, I think, or uh, hopefully, for at least for the age group that you want to start playing. You, you, you want to start playing dads, you know. And yeah, absolutely. It's much more interesting. And, you know, like, I'm excited to be, you know – God willing, like like sixties and seventies roles. Do you know what I mean? Like playing those kinds of characters would be are have always excited to me. What are you and trying I'm, to play, Dumbledore? What are yeah, you exactly, sixties exactly, and seventies? Yeah, no, a little buried child action or something. Oh, oh, those no, no, kind no. of that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, that'd sure. be fun. That's something. That Dumbled- Dumbledore would be fun. Dumbledore would be great. Yeah. <laughs> um, two at least two actors got yeah, the, exactly. their shot at Dumbledore. Exactly, I know. But I mean, um, yeah, I, it's wild to think on Williamstown because it is like, that is like an, a, a different life to me in a weird yeah. way. However, it was really, uh, it, it shaped a lot for me. I don't know if it did for you, but it's like, sure. it, it was a huge, uh, huge experience for me. You know? Yeah, I, I talk about it a lot on the podcast. This has kind of become an unofficial Williamstown podcast. <laughs> right. um, you know, so... You know, we so we that we met back in it was two thousand and two. We were in the apprentice program there. Right. I feel like each year at Williamstown, you got told by people that it was the previous year that was the truly wild <laughs> year. But ha- that being said, t- t- two thousand two was pretty was we're, pretty wild though. We did a lot of partying. We were pretty wild that year. Like I was, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that was, I, I definitely like learned some lessons there. I feel like a <laughs> uh, little bit, but uh, were yeah. we told that the previous year would, I mean, I don't even know what it's like yes. there now. Do you know what it's, is it still well, wild? So I went back in 2008. You did. That's what I thought. Okay. It was, it was a lot quieter. We were, were you we, uh, the act one program? What's it called? I was or, in the, they did sort of, yes, sort of. They, yeah. they sort of combined that. They just called it you were still part of the non-equity company. Yeah, okay. But you were in a workshop group, and then I did get in the next year to be in the non-equity company, and I just... Oh, I had booked a pilot, and I thought it was going to go, and it didn't go. I should have just fucking gone. I ended up going to visit. And when I did that year, it was it seemed to be very quiet. That would have been 2009. Okay. But, um, but in 2008, they were still doing the zoo parties, 
mm-hmm. which were bananas. But oh I, I, there's just these parties they would throw in the backstage of the main stage theater. Right. So this enormous cavernous space where they would load in, and they would turn that into basically a disco or a rave. And our apprentice here, I remember going to those. In 2008, uh, I stayed in my room. I had, uh, you know, the Nonek company, it's like grad school, it's seven days a week. Right. You're doing, you're doing, you're rehearsing one show during the day, you're performing another one at night. I had been in LA for a bit, so I had, I, I had to get used to that kind of demanding work schedule again. Uh, well, and that's actually what it should, that's what I would prefer. I mean, it's, sure. it's like, like that, uh, thinking back on it, I'm like, oh, what a, wasted opportunity in some some aspects you know in, in trying not to be like hard on yourself but but you know it, it um 19 i think is a, probably a little too young to go there to be perfectly honest like when i think about it i'm like i i i think i would have it would have been more beneficial to go at like mid 20s or or later or now like i'm really excited to go do a play there someday you know it's 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 a dream it. yeah. it's it's yeah. like on my bucket list of of things to do yeah. you know absolutely did you um, did you audition to go back? Did you ever audition? I never did. I like. I don't remember what the turn of up. So I was uh, going into my sophomore year in college. So I think that like I considered it, but I I thought to myself, let me just wait a couple of years, and then I moved to LA in my my final semester at Emerson. I did the LA program, and it, things just kind of like set sail from there and I, yeah. I kind of committed to los angeles i did a showcase back when like showcases did things i don't even know if those still even exist i think they yeah. do i've done my fair share i mean i certainly the network showcases are very important I've, right. I've never done one of those i've you know but i've done the, the williamstown showcase i did in 2008 i got more calls after that showcase than any that i had done previously yes i think something like that which is a reputable showcase but do colleges still do them do you know like do they still we did it at NYU, at least. Still, I don't. I'm sure they do. I'm yeah, sure they must. They, do. they must. I did a showcase, and I got a uh, representation out of that in LA, and then I kind of just set my sights on that. Like I, I, I never really, um, you know, for better or for worse, I think I thought, oh, I shouldn't go to to Williamstown to it'll 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 slow momentum. But but you know, thinking back on it now, I feel the yeah. same way as you did about. Uh, hoping the pilot would go. I wish I had gone back. You know, I yeah. wish I had because what's what's one fucking summer in a career? Do you know what I mean? Like, it, it's not gonna like make or break your career. In fact, yeah. I've I've seen more success from doing theater. Period. Always, my entire career, theater has only led to to better to and good bigger things. things. And, Always. Yeah. I think you know, for a- actor actors, like theater is what stand up is to to comic yeah, actors. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, you know, if you're not, if you're waiting for your next thing and you want to stay active, it's like going up on stage at the comedy store or wherever. It's like that you can, you, you're still working on your, your career, your craft, and you're, uh, you're, you're doing your art. And I think for, you know, for folks who are not comedy people, it's like, if you're just an actor, actor, theater is like that. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. So now you, you grew up in Philly, correct? I did. I grew up in Philly. And both your parents are teachers. Yeah, they're both retired now, but my, my mom was a third grade teacher and my dad was a sixth grade teacher and then a seventh grade English teacher. My gosh. And, and, so you're, and you're also the youngest of three. I'm the, yeah, my, and my brothers are both artists as well. My, my oldest brother is uh, an artist. He's a, he's a uh, visual artist and silk screening. He teaches at Delaware uh, hmm. University. And then my, my uh, 
middle brother is a musician who works for a music software company called Ableton Live. He actually designs he designs musical instruments, like new 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 instruments, basically. So new instruments. New ins- he does he designed this thing called the Push, which is a um, square with buttons on it. It's used Holy by a lot a lot of DJs and a lot of uh, musicians on stage. So. That's awesome. Yeah. When you, so when you're growing up, then I mean, did you feel a little bit like? I'm just curious about this. Like, did you feel like you were sharing your parents with all these other kids, your older siblings, and oh. all the kids that they were teaching in school? You know. Yeah, it was. So I went to a um, a very good private school. My parents, you know, I've thought a lot about about this on the back end because uh, I was kind of resentful of it growing up because mm. it's almost like I didn't have a say. But like I, I went there for free, and it's you know it's like a, I think it's now like a forty thousand dollar a year school, you know, yeah, and yeah. um, and I, I you know I got a really good education, and and the school had a really incredible drama department, so it's like I credit like uh. everything to that, but yeah, like everyone, lo- my dad was really the school that I was at the most because I was there from third grade through senior year, and and he was like this this the hero of the school, you know, so it's <laughs> yeah, the, like. Yeah. I never, I only had him as a teacher for math once. I was going to ask, did you ever have him? Yeah. We just ignored, it was amazing. We just ignored each other because he didn't want to like, he didn't <laughs> oh, want yeah. to um, uh, overcom. He was like overcompensating the other way. And I was like, well, I can just take advantage of this and not do anything. Then. I would do the same thing yeah. probably. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. It was great. But yeah, I mean, my, our, we're very close, our whole family. So like we, uh, my brothers are, you know, my best friends and. Um, That's a great. My parents, I, I thank them a lot for being so supportive, like of of everything. Um, it, they have three artists as kids, and and they never gave us shit for it. You know, they just supported <laughs> it completely. You know. And what do you think about that? As in terms of, um, uh, uh, like, a, is there a theory there? Like, just just say yes, just support, and think something will work out. Well, I think that it wasn't supported by their parents. So like my dad is, a, uh, yeah. my dad is an incredible black and white photographer. Like we had a dark room in our basement growing up and, mm-hmm. and he likes to say he's not artistic at all. He's like, I don't know where you got it from. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? You have like, you do photography is art, you know, it, it's, but I, I think that like that, yeah. um, uh, conservative Catholic, Catholic, uh, upbringing that they both had, like you have to follow in the footsteps of, you know, uh, running this quarry company in upstate New York. Well, they got out of that. And so I think that they saw the benefits of that and really were just nurturing for us to do whatever we wanted to do. That's great. Were you, so with the Catholic stuff, did you have to do, were you an altar boy? Did you do the whole? No, I, I didn't grow up Catholic. My, my dad did. So. Oh, and how, what was their feeling about that? Were they sort of uh, non-practicing Catholics? They like completely rejected it. 100%. Oh really? See, yeah, see, yeah, now so. I have completely rejected it, but yeah. my, my folks had not. I mean, I I had to do. I was the I did the altar boy thing. And oh then God! I, I got my no. confirmation, and yeah. No, if, if anything, I have like passed down rejection of Catholicism from my dad. I was actually raised. Um, I was actually raised Quaker, uh, which is oh, wow. not what people think. It's people immediately think it's Amish, which is like no cars and et cetera, et cetera. But. Uh, the school that I went to was a Quaker school, which are pretty common on the East Coast. So when They're you call- say raised, you mean through the school? Well, no, my parents were were, were Quaker, and like really, I like to think of Quakerism as being like the Buddhist version of Christianity. Like they believe that there's that of God in everyone. They don't believe in like you know a denomination and and priests. So it's it's essentially like pretty meditative, and uh, huh. their form of worship is 
sitting in silence for 45 minutes mm. and speaking if you want to speak or not. Um, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I don't know that they are necessarily practicing now, but that was their form of, of rejection from uh, from Catholicism on their ah, end. I yeah. see. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I think about it, it's like I, you know, sort of think in terms of being a humanist, then it, and then it's, you know, outside of that, it's like a de- spirituality for me is kind of the way the transcendentalists of the, of the East Coast, the Northeast, were the you know the Henry David Thoreau's, the Emersons, yeah. the, the Walt Whitmans of, you know, if you look at nature, there's you can sort of see God in nature, and I yeah. think that to me is enough. I think to sustain me, you know, uh, my, my not same. understanding more of it is perfectly fine. I think it's also like okay to. My favorite thing about it is like it's okay to sit in silence and not have any answer on anything and just ruminate in that, you know. Yeah. Um, have you there, gotten into that now as a as an adult? Are you meditating? This is a thing I am not quite doing. I feel like I, if I'm on my, if I'm doing my like workout bike, I think that's I'm meditating there. Right? Well, so I actually just had a conversation with somebody about this. Um, I guess a, a therapist. I had I did like a spiritual therapy phone call with someone, and um, yeah, I, I practiced TM for a while. Like I practiced, right. I practiced meditation for a while. Like there were, there were, I had three year period where I meditated twice a day, 20 minutes, morning and evening. And there's no doubt that it was incredible. Enter children. It's fucking impossible. I have people who are like, my morning practice is amazing. Like I write in the morning journal and then I meditate and I'm like, I can't do that. Can't I'm like barely shit. getting out the fucking house. Yeah. yeah. I meditate doing the dishes right. when I meditate. So, so that's exactly right. So this is what this person told me is they were like, you are, you got to think of yourself as like a, a, a fire. So like you're constantly need to be tending to it. That can be one minute. That can be 30 seconds. You know what I mean? Yeah. Stop putting this pressure on yourself that you have to meditate for 20 minutes a day or, or 10 minutes a day. Just sit and like be silent for 30 seconds while you're, or while you're doing the dishwasher or with your, your kid, you know, and just allow that to be a meditation. Yeah. It's it's helped me out a lot because it relieves that pressure because it's kind of all or nothing for me. If I I'll go through a day and I'm like, well, I didn't have time to do 20 minutes. Well, fuck it, I didn't get to meditate. I failed today. You know what I mean? Yeah, and that's not good. Yeah, that's not good. <laughs> so I do. Yes, I do like to meditate. I do try to practice that. I I think the benefits like are enormous, and I can I can feel it when I when I am in the groove of it. I definitely feel it. This conversation has reminded me that I haven't done it today. So it's, it's good. <laughs> I would. I almost said like, well, let's do it right now. That I know. Would, wouldn't be very entertaining for people. Let's but... pretend. Let's do it right now. <laughs> and then you can just leave like a 45-second silence in there. Yeah, I think it's just about sort of like, it's like the thing that, it's like you got to remind yourself to breathe. You got to remind yourself like just be here right now. That's everything, right? Like I'm sitting here. I'm, in, I'm talking to you. This is nice. I'm not going to worry about how long the interview is going to go. I'm not going to worry about if there's going to be noise outside the window right. <laughs> of my office. But that's kind of, isn't that, isn't that what it's about? It's just like, just be here right now? I think so. And I think that, like, if you ask me, like, what is my most, the the most meditative state that I ever feel, and I, I bet you you can, res- this res- resonates with you, it's it's literally the moment on stage when you forget that you're on stage. Oh, sure. Do you know what I mean? Like that's right it. One. Yeah. That's it for me. It's like and that is what you just said. It's listening and breathing and being present and it's like 
when you black out on stage and get off stage and you're like, I don't know what the what fuck happened? just happened. Yeah. Like that is the best feeling. I have goosebumps. Like that is literally the best feeling in the world for me. And so yeah. Yeah, how can you achieve that in daily life? Because like, obviously we're not on stage all the time, you know? Um, yeah, I guess it's having a conversation like this or, or, or just giving yourself 10 minutes to, to feel that way. Absolutely. And how do you find that in like, not to shift here, but like, the constant battle for me is like how you find that in an audition. Do you know what I mean? Or in other aspects of acting because you can't, you're not always going to get that, that feeling you get on stage on set or on, on an, in, in well, an thing, audition. Yeah. I mean, I wish that I, I wish I booked more of my auditions. First of all, you know, every actor does. I think yeah. that, you know, the philosophy on auditioning is such a, you know, it's oftentimes when I talk to folks about auditioning, it's like there, it's a, it's, it's like the standardized test. It's not, the it's not often oftentimes it, like it, it it looks like it's you're just acting but you're also there are certain things about the audition room that are a test i suppose there's so much more that goes into it there are just plenty yeah. of people will t- give you a laundry list of rules of how you're supposed to audition and, and particularly now we got these self-tapes and how to do that right and i agree it's hard to get to that moment of like just allowing people to see you right and to just and, and instead of worrying too much about like what what do they want, just be like what is interesting to me. What's fun? just follow the fun. So yeah, I find that too. It's very hard for me to to just get out of my own way. And I think um, you know it, it's hard to strike that balance of like there are some things that you should keep in mind when you're when you're auditioning in terms of like this is uh, sort of a unique situation in terms of acting. Um. But at the same time, like have those kind of moments of feeling like you're letting fully let go, right? Right. And right. emotionally dropped in and all of it. And um, you could, like, here's one like tone of a particular show. You know, yeah. it's like you, if you, you want to sort of let go and sort of give yourself over to the thing. But at the same time, if it's a Sorkin thing, you also have to know that like there's a certain rhythm and a pace. Yeah. So it's like, you know, the, making sure that you're nailing tone of a particular show is always still going to be rattling around. Um, yeah, I mean, I wish I was, I wish I was better at it. Have have you found any tricks for this? I mean, there's just a million, (laughs) I mean, like I was just, I was just thinking about like just fucking eyeline. I mean, if I'm doing an audition and I'm talking to some, and I'm doing it over here, it's going to be a shittier audition. Yeah, you're never supposed to be sort of in profile. Right. You, you, even though it feels natural, sometimes right. you're like, hey, hey, Mike, like off to the side. It's like, you got to kind of keep it close to camera. There's yeah. eyeline and then there's eyeline of multiple people. Um, yeah, yeah. I, 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 you know, the, the whole self-tape thing is a whole nother ball game because it's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, a, it's a whole nother set of rules and then making sure that you don't overthink something because you do have all the time in the world to do it. You know, yeah. there, there is something that I miss about being able to go in the room and having like, maybe not knowing what I did exactly, you know, yeah, and being like, that's right. like you give it away, you give it bit. away. And like mm-hmm. being like, Oh, I booked the role and I don't have to replicate the thing that I've watched and edited and put online and know exactly what I did because I did seven takes of it. You know, like there's a, there's a bit of a freedom to it. Um, and also you know, not getting that, like we're, we're now shooting, you know, into a bucket, like with our ideas, like I could give you my take on a character and it could be completely wrong. And then that's it, you know, but if I'm in a room, I can get that adjustment. The redirect. Right. Right. So I don't, I don't know, like specific tips. It's really, I think it'd be really hard. How often do you do the multiple versions when you're doing your self tapes? Uh, 
Um, like sometimes they'll say, feel yeah. free to, yeah, I, I'd say send us um, two different versions. And it's like one out of on one of one out of every 20. So not often. Yeah. 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 I think it's like, if it's a character, if it's like a, you're, it's a pirate. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Okay. Well then, well yeah. then I'm going to give them two. like, I'm going to give him this guy and then I'll, I'll give him like this guy. Like right. you might do two very different versions of the character, but if it's like a role that it's like, it's clear, like bring yourself to it then yeah, I, then you're gonna do I, then i'm sending one because it's like i'm gonna give them the most clawed version of this and sometimes and hopefully that's I'll, what they're, you know. sometimes i'll leave it up to my reps too like i there are sometimes when i will send them to and just say you choose i'm yeah, i yeah, like yeah i like both of these yeah. you choose if it's if they're short if it's a shorter audition i'm i'll be more inclined to say i'm gonna give them two yes. you know like if it's sometimes, like a co-star or yeah, or whatever. If it's like a page of stuff. a couple pages, you know, then I, yeah. then I'll 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 be inclined to give them a little bit a little bit more, but not often, like because I do think that there's a bit of um, power to to uh, choosing your take on it. Do you know what I mean? I agree with that too. This is this is my thought on this. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. I think I think that you become if you become a little bit um, indecisive on it, then that's not necessarily the greatest look either. I don't think. I agree. All right, so let's. So we're going back now. So you went. So you went off to Emerson College, yeah. and we have some mutual friends from your time at Emerson. One of my best friends from my time growing up in Concord, Mass, is Rob Wilson, who's now a big Hollywood editor. Who he very graciously edits all of my video teasers for this podcast. Oh, he does. Um, at, Rob edited my first few reels of my entire life yeah, as well. Yeah, he, yeah. Really, he edits my reels. He's still he's editing my reels right now. He yeah, has I think- a. He's a mensch. He's probably the, the nicest person that person you'll ever meet. Rob is was uh, lived next door to me in my first dorm at Emerson. <laughs> That's where I've met him. I met him on my first day. And did he, he still have the VW bus? Yeah, yeah. He, oh my god, incredible! He, he did. Yeah, he he lived next door. Smoked a lot of weed in his uh, his dorm room. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, he. Um, he, you know, I think about with Rob, it's like, I, I should probably interview Rob at some point. I have a feeling Rob will be the first person of my very close friends who wins an Oscar. Like I agree. You he's know? so talented and such a good guy, man. I, I haven't seen him in a long time. I think the last time I saw him was, um, I think in Austin, we, we were both there for something at South by Southwest and we went out a few, a few times, but like Rob is one of those people where just you 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 see them again the first time in a couple of years and you just pick off right where you left off you know yeah. what i mean he's such a, he's so easy he's such a great great guy yeah um you uh you also know i think a a, a director greg Cohn, who yeah i did sketch comedy with oh i didn't know that awesome yeah we did a little we did a little show for mtv years ago he uh I, do i remember did you travel with him maybe to I know he did a program at Prague, but maybe I'm getting him. Maybe I'm getting you confused with Rob. Maybe no, Rob did that. With no, I, I went with both of them. You did. You Prague. were there too. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that's a very serious film program in Prague, yeah. right? Yeah. So so I actually went to Emerson for cinematography. Um, I didn't know that. So okay. yeah, I I applied to uh, USC film in Emerson and got into Emerson. Got into like USC plane. They were like, you can apply to film the next year. I hmm. didn't do it. But Emerson had an incredible underground theater program, which is half the reason why I wanted to, to do it, because I, I knew that you could still act as a and, do, and make films. Um, and uh, I ended up getting a double major in, in theater and, and film there and, and doing both. But 
Prague was, I believe, our ju- my junior year. I think Rob's senior year. Yeah, it, it was it was two months in Prague, um, doing a film program. It was, I mean, definitely the most memorable part of my experience at Emerson. I mean, it was just amazing, yeah. like living there and shooting. Shooting there, we were just switching over from film to digital, so it was kind of a mixture of both. But learning from these um, in- incredible filmmakers uh, doing stop motion animation and and just just also I, I could have done an entire semester there. I wish that they had that as an option. That's really cool, and I, you know, so Emerson has become a very serious mafia yeah. in L.A., particularly for their behind the camera programs. And like you said, they've also got, I didn't know it was underground, but they've got a great sort of theater community, I suppose. Um, well, they, I, I guess it's not on, like, what I meant by that is that they have They a do have of, a theater program. They have a, they have a theater program, but they also have um, student-run organizations that put up plays in all of their theaters, and you yeah. don't have to be a, a theater major to do them. So anyone can audition for them, which I, I really liked that you could just audition. Like, I was doing four plays a semester at the beginning of the uh, oh my, God. my first few years there yeah. while also doing making films. So it's like, you could really immerse yourself in, in everything. Um, I don't know if it's still the same because they've, they've gotten rid of some of those old theaters that we used to perform in. So I'm not sure if that they have access to all of that still. Well, they have built a major film school facility here in LA about five, 10 years right. ago. Right. Um, it's a beautiful facility. I don't think I've been on, I haven't been on the inside, but it's, it's enormous. It's, it's on beautiful. sunset Boulevard. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think has been the key to Emerson's career? It's a small college in Boston, a beautiful college in Boston, Massachusetts. What's been key to their growth and influence in the entertainment industry? Do you, do you have any sense of why it, it was, uh, it's been so sort of just as successful as maybe larger programs? I, I'm always of them. Like I've always gravitated towards smaller, smaller classes and smaller programs. Like in general, like even if, even with acting studios in LA, it's like, I feel like there is this, passion that ruminates when like a small force field of people get together. I don't don't know if that makes sense, but like, um, I, like I wasn't interested in going after some of the larger name schools. For some reason, it just seemed like there was this like put your head down and work and, and artistic mentality there that, that really attracted me to it. And, and like I said about the, um, the student run governments, it just felt like student run organizations. It just felt like everyone, was free to do like like many different passions there, which I think um, might be the key to people's success. Like uh, my friends were part of, so I had some friends that were in the theater program, I had some friends that were in the directing program, some friends that were sound majors. Like it was, you're kind of immersed with everyone, which I think is more, um, more, more close to real life and the real industry when you come out here. So maybe that's uh, part of their success as well. Because I do think that, when you're when you're in a conservatory or you're blinded by just being with people that are studying the same thing as you, it can be a little bit detrimental once you're like let free into the real world. That's interesting. Yeah, well, I like that that theory. So and so you're out. You do this final year in LA through the Emerson program. You start working pretty quickly. You get an agent out of a showcase doing that. Um, I want to ask you, what are some of your memories of LA? I mean, I, when we first arrived here, it was a very different town. Than it is now. Would you? I lived at the Oakwoods. Do you know what the Oakwoods? Yeah, I lived at everybody. Oh, you did. I rocked the couch at the Oakwoods for about two months when I first moved out. Well, well, that's where we were put up for Emerson, and it's not called the Oakwoods anymore. So no, it's yeah, it's called uh, Avalon or I don't know something. 
Well, I remember driving. I remember driving into LA, and it was. This is crazy to say now, but there's monsoon rains, and Laurel Canyon was closed because oh, really? houses had fallen down because <laughs> it had been this, raining. Two thousand three, maybe. Two thousand five. Oh, two thousand five. So I would have been here. Yeah, it was like that was it, my first year here. it rained for like a month and a half straight. So I was like, I what about that? Yeah, what the hell is this city? Yeah, I mean, it it actually makes me feel weird thinking of LA first moving out here because it it is uh, it has changed a lot. Uh, I, I mean, mean like I, when we arrived here, it was like peak ble- Blink One Eighty Two era. <laughs> yeah, everybody I, was wearing cargo pants. Yeah, I mean, it was could, douchey. It was definitely douchey. There was, you know, it was clubs. Like I remember, lots of clubs. Like lots yeah, of cl- yeah. like Hyde, Hyde. Yeah, Hyde. Hyde. And, uh, sure. Yeah. Um, that's the only one I remember. It's but yes. It's blinding. Like I, I think a lot of I've thought a lot about like you know I don't know how I would have fared if I had like gotten something huge out the gate. There's sometimes I think back on that and you're like, you see why people burn fast, you know, other they're oh, not ready sure, yeah. or. Yeah. They're tantalized by this, that, or the other um, just coming out here right away. So, yeah, I, I always have liked L.A., but I know that when I first – when I started moving to the – I don't live on the east side anymore. But when I when I moved to the east side, and this is like way, way back before the east side was super cool that it is mm-hmm. now. Yeah. I remember when I moved there, I, I felt, okay, this is a place where I could actually stay. Because it, yeah. it felt removed from Hollywood aspect of it. Um, and I felt like – the quicker I was able to find a place that was like a sanctuary for me that was not looking at Sunset Boulevard or Hollywood at all times of the day, the yeah. quicker I was able to feel like it was home. Yeah, you meet you meet some strange individuals in the Hollywood area. I'm sure that's still true. I think you do. You need to get outside of Hollywood. Uh, not for everybody. Every, but I think the point being, though, I think everybody kind of finds their cubby or their corner and there's a lot of L.A. to be had. I think that's the thing that, you know, I didn't realize. It's like when I rewatched Swingers after living in L.A., I was like, oh, that's Los Feliz. Like, right. I didn't even know. Yeah, like. And West Hollywood. And, I mean, it's like kind of everywhere. It's like, but mainly but, Los Feliz. But a lot of the places that I was like, yeah. you know, there, I don't I don't think that I've seen a palm tree in a one of these. Right scenes in, in in for half the movie it's like i don't think you'd see a palm tree it's like it, it feels woodsy it feels almost, almost like these areas are kind of muted in color it's sort of darker and you know you go over on the east side it feels and up into the hills over there it almost feels like you're like it's a you're amongst a bunch of campgrounds well and <laughs> you get into like you get into like south pass or pasadena and you're like oh that's why they shoot this as if it's the east coast you know like people they, right they're, they're, like they're shooting stuff. yeah like pleasantville yeah you're mm-hmm. like oh this yeah. is actually this reminds me a little bit of home sometimes yeah. but yeah i i i used to then you go over to malibu and it's surfing and it's right. there's so much here it, it's it, it's kind of like a treasure hunt la it is and i would say to people because i think people would pass judgment on LA really quickly. Oh, I hate it. I hate it there. And I'm like, well, right. where did you stay? And where they're like, stay? I said yeah. on Bundy and Olympic. And I'm like, yeah, well, I don't fucking <laughs> like Bundy and Olympic either. <laughs> you know, like, of course I've, you hated it. I've had, I spent a few boring nights on Bundy and Olympic. Yeah. It's like, that. oh yeah. God, that sounds, or, or I was in on Hollywood Boulevard or something like that, you know? And you're like, yeah, yeah of course you hate it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it looks like you got involved with some theater out here with another uh, uh, mutual friend of ours, Amy Harmon, who is a founder of the, I believe, the Brimmer Street Theater uh-huh. Company, another Emerson alum uh, or an Emerson alum company. And then also Noah Wiley's theater company, the Blank Theater. 
Is yeah. that right? And yeah. how did you discover the blank? Are they still going? They are. Um, I think that like every company in COVID, they, you know, everybody's kind of pivoted yeah. and, and, you know, doing different things, but they are, they are still going. Um, that, I, that was an audition, man. That was like a random audition from my agent at the time for that show. I mean, I didn't even like, I didn't know anything about the company. Um, it was just an audition for this play called Lobster Alice. And I, I went in and I hit it off with them and I got the part. And I was actually doing, I was doing a play with Amy next door at the Complex Theater, which yeah. is like the, um, you know, we were like self-producing this play right out of college just to kind of stay busy. And I mean, the blank opened up doors like no other for me. I mean, it was just one really? of those, one of those, I think, um, uh, perfect examples of like, just don't think and just do something. I mean, it was a very small part in this play, yeah. you know, but it was only four of us. It was, you know, Nick Brennan, Dory Barton, Noah Wiley and myself. And I got to like really watch these actors, who, all of whom had been acting, you know, their whole lives were very established actors. And I got to watch their process and learn a lot from them. And at the time, the blank, and it still is, but at the time it was, you know, it was a pretty reputable show. So we had sold out shows every night. So I got to meet a ton of casting, like mm. big casting directors would come to that show. Um, but more importantly, that play opened up uh, Young Playwrights Festival oh, yeah. for me. Which, still going on. Which yeah. is still going on, which that um, festival really opened doors for me because there are a lot of casting directors and directors came to that. And then I ended up getting my age, Harry Abrams, who used to run sure. Abrams artist agency, which is now a three. He came to see me. He represented Daniel Henning, who was the head of the blank theater company. Oh yeah. That's right. He, he came to see the show and came up to me afterwards and was like, are you repped? And I was like, I am. And I was poorly repped at the time. I had a shitty agent that, I, I didn't know really even that you could leave somebody. Do you know what I mean? Like it was kind of mm -hmm. like I was barely yeah. just getting my my uh, feet on the ground. And I um, I told him the truth and he said, well, just come take a meeting. And I, and I met with them and I was with them for about 10 years. But they, they wow. that, that opened the door for me to everything because that was the first, you know, real agent that I was with. And um, – and they were also like I really liked Harry's love of theater. You know that was like and Abrams is obviously they're bi coastal. They're they were in, in New York as well. Yeah. But that the young player it's really opened a ton of doors for me. That's so awesome. And so then you you do start booking. You're booking a number of procedural shows like Cold Case and CSI New York, Without a Trace, Criminal Minds. <clears throat> and then in 2008 you get cast as the forensic intern Wendell Bray on the crime procedural comedy drama, Bones. Yes. <laughs> and you appeared in an impressive nine seasons of the show, 42 episodes. Did you know when you booked that show that you would be coming back for multiple seasons? No. I didn't even know I was coming back for another episode. I booked that show and... What was it, a guest star or a co-star? Yeah, it, it was a guest star. And halfway through the episode, they were like, oh, you're in the next one. And I was Holy like, shit. oh, okay. And this happened to coincide right when they had one of the other leads on the show, Eric Milliken, had left the show. So it was weird. Like I, I came in and everyone like thought I was his replacement. And I didn't know. I had no idea what was going on. And um, it was wild. I mean, I remember the first day on that show. I mean, that show was like, 
my first episode, I had a shitload of medical dialogue. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I found out at like 11 o'clock at night, the second AD was like, oh, by the way, tomorrow we're doing all of your scenes. And I was like, what? Like all, all of my medical scenes, all my scenes that were in the lab. Oh, um, yeah. And I stayed up till four, like freaking the fuck out. And uh, just looking up every term and what it means. And beyond that, like just memorize. Yeah. Memorizing. It, memorizing. Like, I mean, yeah. I, I still have uh, lines that I remember from the show. You know, it's like it's that <clears throat> memorization uh, was was tough on that. But, yeah, I didn't know that it was going to uh, lead to what it was going to lead to. You know, I didn't even know after the second episode that there was going to be more. I mean, no, nobody – I don't think they knew. You know, I think it's like they were testing did, the waters. When did you know that you were like, I'm on this show? Um, probably at the end of the first season, but I think maybe the first season that I was on, season four. But I think – I don't know that – I think like looking back, I can say that. I probably didn't even know until like two or three seasons in. You know what I mean? Like you're constantly <laughs> telling yourself this tale of like, oh my God, I'm probably going to be done. Like I'm probably going to be done. This is yeah. probably going to be it, you know? Um but then I'm also like I was also auditioning for other stuff at the same time and doing other shows and you know I I tested yeah. for for other shows while I was on that show and they were prepared to to write my character out if I had if I was going to book another show you know so it was this weird kind of always um, they were so you mean that they were kind of they were kind of cool with that they were going to let you do what you needed to do yeah man I more I hear about I'll talk about this in a second but. It, showrunner on this show sounded like a very, very Hart Hansen person. is like one of the best people in, in the world and Stephen Nathan too but like yeah, yeah. Hart is the creator of it but yeah he he just wants the highest success for everybody that he works with like he's genuinely the nicest person in the world like I it's crazy that's that's so awesome you don't hear that very often <laughs> no what a great experience so the character of Wendell Bray was described I read this online oh boy was, des- was described as the normal guy on the Bones team, does that ring a bell for you? I mean, I'm Who's, wondering what wh- they... Had where t- did you read that? I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm probably Wikipedia or something. Yeah. They said, they said the normal guy. Or maybe it was Wiki for the show or something. Does that resonate with you? Do, do you know what that means? Uh, yeah, I, I, I can surmise. So, like, they hired a bunch of people that they called squinterns. So, like, they hired, you know, like, Pej was one of them. Our yeah. friend Eugene Bird, Carla Gallo, Joel David Moore. They hired a bunch of us, and all of them had were very different, you know. And I guess Wendell was probably, I guess, what I would say is maybe the most grounded. Do you know what I mean? Like, because like everyone, a lot of the other characters had big, uh, very specific uh, character tendencies. But I don't, I don't know. Do you feel know. like you what cultivate the fuck is normal? A sense, of, a, a, a sense of groundedness. No, I did. I not necessarily. I mean, I don't. I, or a I, sense of, or a sense of normalness. Not really, because I. I mean, I don't. I think maybe on the on the on the surface, maybe someone would think that. I don't know. I think that Wendell. Yeah. Wendell is was from nothing, from the streets. You know, like I don't know if that. I guess that's what they're considering normal. I guess I'm not sure. Um, hmm. It's interesting. I've never heard that. But I, I, I think I what they mean, I they probably funny. mean um, not funny. <laughs> not funny. That's really. Do you find, do, do you feel like you've been pulling your punches comedically? I 
would fucking love to do comedy. Is that what you're I saying? You, yeah, oh my god! I you would, yeah, yeah, I absolutely. I think you are funny, but I think you you have a you have a. I do think you have a tendency to hold your cards a little close. I think you're. I think you have a good sense of decorum. Yeah, I I, I do. I think that I've been frustrated in the world of com. Like, okay, so I wish that I had done improv right when I came out to mm-hmm. LA. Right, like I right. wish, like I feel like I've that ship has sailed, and I'm like, oh god, what I'm going to be the 40 year old going into a fucking improv class now, <laughs> you know? And also, like everyone does improv, like it's kind of uh-huh. also past yeah. its prime at this point to be starting it. But it's really hard. This is a question I would ask you. Like, how do? You, it's really hard to make something funny that isn't really that funny on page. Like I, I think I'm funny in my own right, in my own world, at a fucking party, joking around, creating a character that I want to create. I've had a lot of trouble booking comedies like a sitcom or something like that that i don't particularly find funny well i haven't i've never done a sitcom i've tested for a sitcom i've done i've mostly what i i've done a lot of sketches and comedic sketches and things um and i do some stand-up comedy but you know i think that my sweet spot is sort of playing the 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 guy who's funny on the serious show yeah you know and i think that you know but i think if if given the opportunity to do a sitcom, I think I would destroy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think you would too. People have not really put me up for them. I think I would do very well at them. But it did take me a while in those first kind of sitcom auditions. It did take me a while to read what was on the page and go like, oof. Right. What the fuck? And I do remember like, and it's partly it's because they are written in a very precise and specific way. You just have to sort of figure it rather than judge it. You have to figure it out. And I do think a lot of sitcoms, like the writing is such that it creates a performer's medium. You look at that cast of Friends, for example, and what they bring to that. To, by the way, great writing on Friends, but just like what those cast members bring to it, it's such a great collaboration of writing and performing. I think that part of being sort of funny is just sort of, I don't know. I think you're, you're I think some people are just funny the way that they look and move and, and right. I think I am, or sound, I think I am a little bit like that. I think there are moments where I'm trying to be serious and somebody thinks I'm being funny. I think that happens. I think for you, maybe it might be a little the other thing where it's like, you know, people might think of you as being quite a serious person or 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 maybe even veering a little bit on shy. But the truth is that you are funny and you have or or sometimes you're you have a funny thing to say. But you might be pulling it. I don't know. I don't know. That you know yourself. I've so. uh, I've had a lot of more success on stage doing comedy than I have on mm. camera. Like yeah. I I yeah. and I have you're you're right. It's I actually specifically remember one of the young playwrights said we did a farce of something and I remember casting coming up to me being like, I had no idea that you were funny. You know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah, I, yeah. I had no idea that you were a comedic actor because it is hard. You start booking dramatic roles on procedurals or the guest star of the week that has to cry and blah, blah, blah. Right. And then yeah. all of a sudden you're like, oh, that guy is a dramatic actor. Like he's not – he can't do this. Or uh-huh. show me some tape of him being funny. And unless you're self-producing something, it's hard to convince somebody in an audition to take that risk on you. Yeah. You know? I like the Phil Hoffman. I mean, Phil, Phil, Philip Seymour Hoffman was my absolute hero. Me too. And, you know, I think, like, the thing about it, I just rewatched the, the Charlie Kaufman movie he did, Synecdoche, New York. Love that movie. My dad's and, from Schenectady. Yeah. Oh, your dad is, you said? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, so that's a, that is a, that bro- that movie broke my mind open all over again. Like, it, it kind of covers everything I'd ever want to say about anything. <laughs> I, like, I, I need to rewatch it. I've seen it. I saw it in the theater, uh, but I remember loving I mean, it. There's this, there's this scene in the movie where, like, you know, he's being told, 
and he plays with this theater director and he gets this MacArthur genius grant. He does this ridiculous production of that just goes on and on and on for years, 20 years, 30 years. He's <laughs> working on this production, this theater oh. production with this genius grant. And, you know, the longer it goes, the more people are going like this man is a genius. Like, you know, but there are these moments that happen. There's so many funny moments in the in the film, but they're funny and devastating at the same time. So like there's a scene where somebody comes to him and they're like, your father died. And when it happens and it's Phil Hoffman, it's like he's internalizing that. It made me start to cry. And as they continue to talk, they're saying, you know, it was very painful. (laughs) And it's like, Jesus Christ. And then they go on to say, he called out for you. You (laughs) I do remember that. You yeah. know, and then they say, and it was, they said it was the most beautiful bedside speech that had ever been given. And to me, it's like that, to me, that says, that is, it's almost, it's, you know, Chekhov, I think, understood this very well. I think it's why Chekhov calls his plays, those, he calls them comedies, even though characters are killing themselves and they right. never fall in love and they lose their house. He calls his plays comedies. And I think it's like, that to me, I think there's, I find things funny that are uncomfortable. I find things funny because people are, are are silly you know and i so <clears throat> that's my sensibility i think as a performer though i think there have been moments where it's like i do something and people go like that's funny and i i've been like uh, oh oh it is <laughs> it i know is, to me it was devastating but right. you thought it was so i think like hoffman i think understood how to uh, many other actors can do this too but he was he's just my favorite well, but it's like he really understood how to be and, you know, he could do both and he could do both sometimes in the same in consecutive moments in the same scene, you know? I mean, the self-awareness of what you exactly what you said, where it's like you could be saying something serious and not know that somebody else finds it funny. Like Hoffman and Boogie Nights, that was to me oh the introduction of comedy. Like that was I was like, that is the kind of comedy that I want to do. The whole fucking idiot. Like, fucking, fucking idiot. idiot. And and still fucking devastating. You so devastating. Car, you know? It's like yeah. you don't know if you want to like laugh or cry. Yeah. But then you also have Hoffman and like. Along came Polly, and it's like this. Do you, do you remember that movie? Broad like, comedy, broad comedy, but still so fucking grounded and and like real. And like yeah. you, you believe this guy saying like, "We got to go right now." Why? Like uh, I just shuddered. What's that? Uh, I, I tried to fart. I shit my pants. We got to go right now. And like you see this desperation and this like sweating, and you're like, "That is fucking genius." Like that. <laughs> that's always been the comedy that I, I'm interested in. Yes, like I, I didn't. I didn't grow up really watching sitcoms other than Seinfeld. So I think it's probably been hard for me to... I just finished watching all of those. Off of, all of I, Seinfeld? All of them. Because they, wow. they were put They've on... They've been on uh, Netflix or... They've been, they've been put on Netflix and I had yeah. seen... You know, I'd seen... It was interesting to me is like, as I was watching them, as I was going through them, I was like, oh, I've seen this scene. This is a famous scene. Right. Or this is a famous exchange or this is a famous funny thing that people talk about all the time. And it's like, I had seen a lot of these key scenes over the years and I'd, I'm sure I'd watched full episodes here and there when they appeared on TV in syndication. But I had never watched all of them. I think part of it was because I was over in the UK for my high school. And because of that, it was like, I don't even, I don't know that Seinfeld, I'm sure it was on somewhere in the UK, but it wasn't, but you know, wasn't on, I don't know what it was on though. Because we had like the Paramount Comedy Network. And I remember watching a lot of like Mad About You because they would put, that was a show that was on over there. But like I don't remember watching a lot of Seinfeld when I was in high school, and so I think I missed some things. So I, I've just watched all of them it's now. It's masterclass, but like yeah. My my point being that that sitcoms were never really the type of comedy that I gravitated towards anyway. Like I always liked Phil Hoffman, like the more subtle, um, 
subtle grounded like sad kind of comedy where it is like it can be confused for drama in a sense you know yeah well then there's also the thing that i mean when i was coming out of college the thing that was very hot at the time was this was the comedy of the state which were a bunch of nyu graduates that that the state me too that was that was my favorite that was my favorite thing yeah. when I was. And I think, and I mean, school. we're talking comedy influence going further back. It's like, uh, I didn't watch enough of uh, uh, Bob and David, David and Bob. I didn't either. Mr. Show. Mr. Show. Yeah. And I think, yeah. like, I should have. I just didn't really know enough about that. I had, but I, I was over in the UK. I was watching a lot of, like, um, well, old Monty Python stuff. Yeah. And, you know, you know, old SNL episodes and. And then college, I started watching a lot of SNL in in real time. That was like the Will Ferrell years, the Adam McKay years. Right. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I think like, and then the state was doing this sort of, um, I, I don't know, homoerotic kind of um, comedy that was, but it also had a sort of, it did, it dealt with, moments that were kind of like there's a scene with santa that is really fucking weird you know um there's a santa sketch that's really strange but funny because it's like it feels dangerous it feels like dangerous comedy yeah well and and completely out there i mean i uh, it's like gratuitous and things things went on too long it's funny i'd actually like to rewatch the state because i remember being very obsessed with that senior year in high school uh like finding it then and and loving that comedy as well. And those what did guys, you see, like, Wet Hot American Summer? Right away. Like, I remember yeah. watching that right away and, and loving it. Yeah, just absolutely loving it. Also, the kind of comedy... It's hard I to wish explain. They, I wish they'd gotten a chance to work with Philip Seymour Hoffman. I know. I, I agree. I think he would have been... Fit perfectly in with them. But even you look at, like, Bradley... The way Bradley Cooper... That, <laughs> that kind of comedy yeah. is fantastic in that. Even even what he does in Wedding Crashers, I think, is, oh, is yeah. really good... It's it's being dramatic in a, in a way that's like you're so committed to you're what so you believe in. That's I guess that's the key to it. But having the material to back that up, you know, it, I think that though, and that's I guess why you don't see I don't see a ton of comedies where I'm like that's that's one of the best things I've seen because there isn't always that material that's that that's that good in that exact form of comedy that I I gravitate towards. All right, so I'm going to bring this back for a second because uh, I'm going to bring it back to Bones for one second because I want to talk about something next year, which is that, you know, uh, last year on the pod, I had on one of your Bones co-stars uh, and one of your best buds, Mr. Pej Vidat, who played Dr. Arastu Vaziri. And, you know, I, you know, I recommend folks check out Pej's interview in episode 18. It's excellent. He's another brilliant, talented, and funny guy. And, you know, I guess you both kind of came up on the show together. Yeah. Yeah, oddly enough, though, we we really didn't work together for the first, like, three, four years because our characters would never be in a show together. So we'd kind of pass each other on set. Like, when, when episodes would overlap and he would be coming up for rehearsal, like, I, I'd see him and, you know, we'd joke, joke around. Um, I'm trying to think when we really became close, though. Him, Eugene Bird, who was another actor on the show, and I just became mm. really, really tight Probably, yeah. probably four seasons in, and I'm blessed. I mean, like they're really like uh, they're they've been like my rocks for, for a long time. I don't have a lot of actor friends, um, and they've been uh, we've kind of really gone through the ups and downs of this business together. Um, yeah, and we're all very different 
in what our careers are going to be and what they are. And it's been just really genuine, like joy to see success. I think for each of us, I'm, I'm truly so proud and happy whenever I see them succeeding. So it's, it's just been like, it's been really cool to, to just have those sounding boards, uh, yeah. not, to, not to sound all, uh, uh, schmoopy about it, but it's, they're, no. they're great guys. You know, it's, it's hard. The, acting is a, especially on film and TV. It's such an insular thing, you know, like we're, self-judging and not really getting responses and even when you're on set you're not always really sharing a scene with somebody in the way that you would like to when you're on stage so i think having that um yeah hit your mark yeah you know don't look at the person look at the tennis ball over here because that (laughs) island looks weird and you know like it's um it's it's been really really it was really cool to get to meet them and get to know them on the show and have a friendship come out of it yeah, I, I like Paj a lot. I think he's a great dude. He's a, he's a he's he seems very like a kind guy, also but very driven dude. And he was that was a great we had a great conversation. Anyway, he was when we were chatting, he brought it to my attention. I had known I think that both of you were friends or worked together, but then he he brought this up that you were producing the podcast Smartless, hosted yeah. by Sean Hayes, Will Arnett, and Jason Bateman. <laughs> In fact, you are the executive producer of the series, which is currently the number one pod- comedy podcast in the world. So, first of all, con- huge congratulations on that, Mike. Thanks. Um, I think we're getting close to being the number one podcast. Period. Like, yeah, I think- is that is that right? I have no idea. You know, because I don't know anymore. So, what does that mean? Did that mean bigger than Rogan? It means bigger than well. So Rogan. So Rogan has changed because Rogan did a deal with Spotify. So he he essentially lost all the the numbers that he had on Apple and everywhere. Oh, so else. he's not at. 200 million or something. He's not really like in that realm anymore. Like he sacrificed. Where does does Marin fall in the hole? Because Marin's was huge for such a long time. I think he's still pretty big, but I still pretty big. Of course. But yeah, he's, he's definitely big. The whole world of podcasting is interesting because it's not like you can just look at the Nielsen ratings, you know, like you can't, there's not really a public system of knowing how many downloads a show is getting like you know, like you yourself know, because yeah. you have access to what do you what do you put this out on Simplecast or what do you use to we put it out on fucking everywhere? We... But I mean, like, what's your main hub that you go? through? Well, we like... use Anchor, so Anchor, Anchor will tell okay. us. Yeah, we record all of our listens on there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, okay, so that'll tell you what your data is. But like, that's yeah. yours. You don't you don't share that with anybody, and like, you share it with advertisers maybe a little bit here mm-hmm. and there. But it's it's fascinating because it's kind of like the wild wild west a little bit, like the world of podcasting in. You don't really have to tell people how much how many downloads you're getting, but they do know because they know about the ad sales. Um, mm. But yeah, it's it's that's why they do those sort of like promotional ad things. Where it's like use code, right? Uh, Claude's a handsome guy, right. Or blah 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 or whatever, right? right? Those are those are. Based. That is going to be our code at some point. Claude's no, that'll be good. Guy. Claude's a handsome guy. Yeah, make sure to enter code Claude's a handsome guy for your uh, upgrade on a from a queen to a king mattress. For, yeah, for ten yeah. percent off yeah, your yeah. next mattress. Yeah. Um, they, yeah, I mean, like your your you know metrics that are how much people pay per ad are based on your downloads, and you have to make a certain amount. So there are numbers that they have to hit, you know. Um, but we've we've grown. It's been a really it's incredible. <laughs> It's been a it was it's been a wild experience because it was a little out of left field for me and um, yeah and 
Uh, well, I was surprised. I was shocked. I didn't know. I did not expect that in a million years. I mean, it's, having said that, I knew you had your own podcast at one point, right? I did, you did a food centric podcast. As I am, I remembering that right? Yeah, I did a podcast called Second Meal, which was you yeah, know, I liked uh, yeah, that. yeah, yeah. It, it was myself and this guy Josh Levy, who was a producer on Bones. And we, we, it was really whatever hook you could get to get into an interview. It was like, let's talk about a, our favorite spot in L.A. and then interview somebody about their career. And then they can kind of recommend their favorite place to go eat. You know, um, bullshit hook to get into a, a, a podcast. But I had kind of – I started to learn a lot about CPM and metrics on podcasts and how people make money in that realm. And, and then I, um, I am friends with Todd Milliner, who is who – Sean Hayes' business partner at Hazy Mills production company. And yeah. I talked to him about doing some consulting for Hazy Mills on and trying to help them open a podcast division um, as well as a no branded con- content division. So wow. I started working with them as a consultant on that. And the branded content world is a little hard to get into. They had done an Orbitz commercial and like that that was something we were trying to get into. And then in the interim, they were hired to do the SAG Awards and they were like, hey, do you want to you know, be our lead producer on that. And I was like, fuck yes. Yeah. Sure. So I I kind of got to have some fun doing that. Um, Are you kidding me? Fun? I mean, it was really fun actually. Well, wait, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Sorry, we're jumping around here, but yeah. No, no, no. I want to talk about that. So wait, so, cause I got to ask like you're that that, it's me. I mean, it's incredible. And what an, what a wonderful experience, but it just sounds like a pressure cooker. I mean, you're you're producing a major televised award show with the biggest actors in the world. What could go wrong? Well, to to be fair, and like, I, there are a lot of people working on that. Do you know what I mean? Like, I was not. I was the co. So the when co- Hazy, so when Hazy Mills gets brought in, it's one of multiple production companies that are. No, they were the only production company brought in. They and they were brought in to kind of give I ideas if from a developmental standpoint um more more creative creative ideas basically and um the sag awards has its own amazing team of people sure. that produce it on on a on many different levels there's many sure. different yeah, positions right. there yeah, you know um right. so it was more from a creative standpoint i mean we did shoot some we did some um revised versions of i'm an actor so we had some onset mm. production yeah. there but the most exciting part of the whole thing was the night of, man, being backstage. Like, it was just really cool. Like, having, I mean, it's just little, like, bullshit little kid things of, like, having the lanyard and being backstage and being by the monitors at an award. I mean, it was, yeah. like, really fucking cool. Oh, glamorous and fun, yeah. for sure. Yeah, I just, you know, it's... Uh, so, and why did you start thinking to yourself, like, I understand you were you were learning about podcasts and, you know... It sounds like also, you know, you, you, you went to film school. So it's like to move into producing makes some sense. But, you know, you're a busy working actor. Why all of a sudden were you like, yeah, I'd like to produce or well, consult for a, a production company? I mean, you know, I do think this is very true. It's like if you're a person in L.A. who wants to do, I don't give a shit. You want to do anything. If you meet somebody or that is very famous and hopefully a nice person. Um, and you can help them or be in their orbit or be part of their production, anything like that, you should do it. You know, the number of people that I know that were like somebody's yoga teacher who are now a series or a serious producer at a major television production company and things like that um, are astounding. And I think like, 
you know, then there's that person who's the actor who is thinking like, well, no, I got to spend all my time in acting class and blah, 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 or, or this is the thing that I care about. Like, can you speak to some of these things? Is it having a couple of divergent passions? Is it, was there also a little bit of like, I don't really know what I'm doing with my acting career right now. I'm kind of am interested in maybe making a shift with my career. Yeah. I mean, a lot of those things. So first of all, all, all kind of all of the above. Yeah. Like, first of all, I, I think that, I can, I'm never someone who can just be an actor. Like I've always wanted to do a lot of different things. I need to be really yeah. busy. Like it's really difficult for me to sit and go to, go to a class and, you know, maybe do a play and audition. Like it's very hard for me to have it just be that because it's too much waiting around and too much, uh, too much left to chance. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Bones ended and I, to be frank, had trouble getting another fucking job man this is what this business is it's like for for how long how long are we two years okay long long i mean like i i did um i did some voiceovers but i got close on a lot of things and it was um it was dry you know and then yeah and it fucks with you it, sure. it starts to make you go, well, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Maybe I should right. be looking for other things. Maybe I should be, you know, broadening. Yeah. Uh, my- I've taken a number of these jobs myself over the years. I've produced for media companies and things. When they, I get that same thing. It's like, if this, oh, shit, if this is not working, then I'm going to start doing, you know, I'm going to put my resume out. And, you know, um, I think that, you know, in, ingratiating yourself, though, with a, a major Hollywood power player. Uh, Mr. Sean Hayes, I, I think that's, I, I think he would probably ad, admit to that. He's got a he's got a, a he's got a lot of sort of um, he's got a great reputation. He's got great leverage. He's a, he's a he's a he's a mover and a shaker. And um, but I think it's you know to 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 be brought into somebody like that into their sort of circle of trust. I would imagine takes kind of a thing that I would think about you is like you, my instinct tells me that you're good at this in part because like you're kind of a chill. Dude, sometimes <laughs> <laughs> I would say you're you're just you're just you're good vibes, Mike. Oh, thanks, thank you. And I, I would say that's probably an important thing around folks whose careers are very stressful. And you I know. think it is, and I think that like even for producing Smartless, I do have to sit back sometimes and pinch myself sometimes because it's like holy shit. Like there are there are moments in the middle of the first year when I was like. I'm fucking producing a massive show with three huge stars. And like, it's probably yeah. better that I didn't even really realize that to start. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was organic with, with getting introduced to Sean. Like, you know, I, I, so Todd Milliner's husband, Michael Matthews is the best director I've ever worked with in my life. And I've done, hmm. I had done uh, four or five plays with him before oh, in yeah, the past. Wow. So it's like there's another aspect of theater leading to other things. Like yeah. it, it just um, – it had opened the door to that and uh, it just felt organic. And Sean is a wonderful person and he yeah. is easy to get along with. But yeah, I do think that there is something to not necessarily treating stars like they're otherworldly or somebody else. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's – um, Conan O'Brien used to say – he used to say like you got to act as if it's normal. Right. I think I, you know, the thing I would worry about for myself, it's like, and, and I've gotten to talk to some really cool people just doing this podcast and, you know, um, 
certainly, you, you know, we, we have those experiences where we're on set with people. Um, I think it's a balance. You got to strike a kind of a balance because it's like if you're if you if you act like it's a little too normal. Yeah, it actually do, there is a balance because yeah, there is. It's funny. I remember I I texted Jason. Can't, can't um, be telling you can't be telling a big name like hey, hey, grab me a coke or something. It's well, like, but there is also normal. we're also all um, we're all human and we're all artists who like want to. Like I remember I texted Jason when he was up for an Emmy for Ozark and I was like, Hey, I don't think I've let you know this, but like I fucking love the show. And I realized I hadn't even told him that in a year mm -hmm. of working together, yeah. Yeah. you know? And I think that, and he was just like, Oh my God, thank you so much. And like, I think we, you kind of forget that it's still nice to hear those things. Sure. Even if you're yeah, someone, I think, massive, it's also, it's, you know? I think about this too. It's like, if you meet someone for the first time and you tell them that right away, there could be a problem there too, because sure. there is a tendency. I think sometimes where people go like, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. You know well, yeah, I mean? and you don't want them to be overbearing. So yes, this yeah. this whole that makes total sense to me that it would occur to you at some point to be like, hey, buddy, by the way, it's like you're yeah, and like I mean, I I remember like the first so the first meeting, Sean basically was talking to Todd and I, and he was like, um, so Jason and Will and I talked, and we think we do a podcast, and I was like, yes, I literally was like, the, <laughs> to me, like, and I will say this till the day I die to me it was a no fucking brainer that this was sure. going to be huge. Like it's, and they all came in, they came in and we met at the conference table with Todd and me and, and the three guys. And it really was, I was like a fly on the wall. Like I barely said anything. I just said, I mean, I literally just cried laughing cause they were, they did what the show is on the first time that we met them. And I was yeah. like, this yeah. is, this is a no fucking brainer. And, <laughs> and it happened to coincide with, COVID, man, it was like the perfect well, storm of everything happening. Yeah, so all I at wanted once. to ask about that. And you and I talked right before we started recording because we did a nice, you were very helpful to sort of walk through a couple of things for our setup that we were doing today. But, you know, so this podcast similarly it was born out of a pandemic, not similarly in that the, the host of the show is anybody famous because uh, <laughs> they are not. And I think that, um, but, you know, it's, so all of these interviews that you're all doing are being recorded the same way that we've been doing, which was, which is remotely correct yeah and how about the three hosts are they always in the same spot or are they always in different places never been in the same room together except for Incredible. when they did the tour recently now that is stressful and i think you know we were talking a little bit about because you got a there's there's a tendency for overlap and things like that but also it's just like now you've got to keep track of these multiple sound files and make sure that none of them are corrupted right now, what yeah. we do here is we have a backup. We record our Zoom uh, that you and I are talking on, and then you and I are both recording our voices separately. It took us a little minute to sort of figure out that process. But in this, in your situation, you've got to have a backup, I would imagine, on each person, including the guest, right? Well, we have – no, we don't do backups on the guys necessarily, but we, we, we have them all recorded on individual tracks with um, – our other producer Rob, he's listening and adjusting levels while we're recording live. So okay. he he knows if something is a glitch or if there's in real something time. Wrong, in real time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like with guests, especially when it's someone big, and you're like, we're never going to get them back. You know what I mean? Like they're not going right. to come back if on. It's and George do a, Clooney, right? Do a pickup. Can't of something. do this again. Right. Yeah. So we've had issues with with um, internet connections, especially early on when everyone was. Uh, <laughs> everyone was dealing with their slow internet at home yeah, yeah. and things were glitching, but it was stressful to start. And I mean, it still can be stressful. I mean, like the, the yeah. tech setup for Robin Bennett, who are the other two producers on the show 
like I give them big kudos. They they do the tech setup with the with the guests every every episode, and it can be stressful if someone comes on and they're not ready to go because you have a lot riding on it. Because not only have you booked this huge name, but you have three other people's schedules that you're trying to work into, and it's it's a lot. You don't want to lose it, you know. You don't want to lose the file or the of interview. Course. Um. So what is not so? Are they gonna? How long are they gonna do this for? I know they they did a big deal. That was one of the things that Pez had talked to me about because you know he was like, well, they you know they did this big deal. Um, with so they, who was it? Was it Spotify as well? No, no, with Amazon and Wondery. Oh, um, okay, right. So Pez, I heard him say he said Spotify, and I don't. He's he doesn't know what he's talking. About. Yeah, uh, they they did um <laughs> they did uh, no, Wondery and Amazon, and so they have a three year deal with them. Um, and I believe that they are going to be okay. putting out some other shows under the umbrella. They've, they've started now a, a whole company, a smartless media company. So that hmm. entire company is now going to be putting out other shows, potentially with them, potentially not, with the guys attached to it, yeah. potentially with other people. This little COVID project baby has turned into something so much larger that I don't think any of them necessarily thought it would. Um, yeah. And... You know, going back to COVID, like this wouldn't, I don't think this ever would have happened if we had tried to do this in a period of time when they were all working because I was, no, right. I was looking at, I was looking at a space to record at Jason's office, aggregate films upstairs the day before LA shut down. And we were about to, we were about to record, about to start book that spot. And we pivoted, made it all, um, made it all remote. And we banked 35 episodes over the summer. Yeah. And just, and then we were able to take, you know, four months off when they went back to shooting. So yeah, it's, it's been, um, it's been all, you know, was, it wouldn't have happened otherwise, you know. That's what we do as well. We, we bank about 20 per season. It's, right. you know, sometimes it's tricky sometimes because it's like, you've got to line up your 20 people in as close a, uh, sort of amount of time as you can and then sort of get them out as quickly as you can. But it is it's very time consuming. And sometimes there have been, you know, we've gotten one, you know, I think by our first season I recorded with Chris Pine it was like the first episode and then a month went by before I recorded the second one. And then I, then I, then you uh, frantically at the end, it's like, I, I can, I can schedule tomorrow and then I'll, I'll do another one at the day after that. And, you know, um, but banking, I do like banking cause I do like kind of releasing it's like a, a little trailer for the thing, almost like it's like a TV series. Well, in, um, and we're required to release weekly, so it's like we can't. You can't fall behind. We can't skip a week because yeah. we have advertisers already bought for that week, and right, the right. the issue now is like when we first started the show, it was like I mean I was blind calling, blind emailing reps, just begging like, hey, can you come on? And you'd think honestly, you'd think that with these three guys' names that people would just jump in <laughs> to do it, but that's not always the case, and the guys know that too. Now we've become a show that is has more listeners than a talk show does. Yeah, so now it's a must stop. So now it's, it's like you're promoting a movie, you've got to go right. on this show now. But that's that's kind of a blessing and a curse too because now you have reps being like, well, they can't come on if it's not going to be released around their show. You know what I mean? So it's like this right, weird... Right. Um, yes, completely. Back it's, and forth when, when does it be? When is it ever going to be an organic conversation anymore if it's only going to be part of a press tour? Well, the great thing is that it's not... The guys don't do... Like, it's... 
it's getting known right now that it's not we don't people aren't coming on to promote the tour it'll be mentioned or show it'll be mentioned but that's not what the show is right right yeah absolutely well that's a what a what a wonderful it sounds very exciting i you know the show is obviously fantastic love all of them and and they're you know congratulations on that it's uh it's fantastic it's fantastic you know, seeing their lineup of guests does give one pause. I mean, you're just kind of like, well, shit, what am I even doing? But I think that there's an opportunity maybe to talk to folks who are on the come up now who, you know, eventually it's like, oh, there's this cool interview from a few years ago that was on this guy's podcast. So I'm, you know, by hook or by crook, if we can get big people, great. And, you know, otherwise it's like, I, you know, talking to you and learning so much about what you do, having a, a podcast producer as well as a, a very talented and, and well-known actor, it's. It, I think the, these conversations are are deeply meaningful to me. Um, Thanks, Ben. Yeah, it's been fun to come on. Yeah, I want to ask you. So you're also working on a scripted project, is that right? Yeah, I've been. I've taken the last COVID. I've I've, I've kind of dived back into writing as well a bit, um, and I've been. Uh, I'm working on two projects right now. One is a limited series that I'm trying to get off the ground at some point. Um, and then I also have uh, I did a I did a lifetime uh, a Christmas movie last last yeah. fall, and it was a lot of fun. And I was like, I saw you know, that. yeah, where um, I didn't I, did, I actually did not see it. But yeah, I'm sorry, I don't want to be. That's okay. Oh. That's okay. But but I have been talking to them about um, not necessarily lifetime, but just in that realm of of getting. The script, a holiday movie off the ground as well. I, this is kind of goes back to the conversation of like, I just think I'm constantly want to have my hands in like every single basket possible. And going back to Sean, like Sean is the perfect example of that. You get a shot at a sitcom and you want to use that leverage, I think, or, or a show. And you want to use that leverage to continue to, to, to create projects and create things so it doesn't really matter to me what medium it's in i fucking love writing i've always loved it um to me i it's the same fulfillment as writing is when you get lost in writing uh, lost in acting um so i i'm excited for for that chapter of, of things to hopefully take off as well and then you're back to acting. I mean, or I, I should say back to acting for a second. You've also recurred on NBC's Grimm and uh, the CW's Roswell, New Mexico, and you're auditioning, you know, currently. You know, one of the things I wonder about is, like, how hard is it to balance family life, producing life, and, you know, the actor's life? I mean, I, I understand your – I take your point on wanting to stay busy. I feel that way, too. But – I'm getting tired, man. And we're talking. We started this whole podcast talking about how old we are. How do, how do you know? We talked about meditation and stuff like that. But like, how about this? Like, are you getting eight hours a night of sleep? Um, I get about six or seven. I get about that too. Yeah, and and it's actually been a lot better in the past um, half a year. I think it's gotten it's gotten a bit better. I feel like we've gotten out of this hump of co- like there was a period in COVID when yes, it was like I. I didn't really know how to handle it all. And I thought, oh, God, maybe acting's done, you know, for a period, like for a little bit of time, like not, not even just just honestly, because I was like, what's going to happen with productions? Are we ever going to go back in person to audition? You know, mm. but yeah, I mean, I have a two and a half year old. How, how old are your kids again? I got so one of one of them's going to turn three in a couple of weeks here and the other is six. Yeah, I have I have two and a half. She'll be three in September and then my stepsons are. 12 and 14 so yeah it's like balancing all of that 
I guess the biggest thing for me is like, goes back to even that med- meditation conversation. It's like, I'm, I'm the king of being really fucking hard on myself. And so it's like, if I can just be okay with doing the best I can in an audition, be okay with doing the best I can with my kids and like trying to put my phone down and trying to turn emails off and try, you know, I don't know. I don't know how to just balancing it in some way or another. Um, I think we're our own worst enemy, especially as actors. I I know I am at least. And I think things have changed for me in the past year and a half. My perspective on it has changed where it's not, um, it's not all I have. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think that there's something that's a fault when acting becomes all you have in life. I think that, you, when you're putting all your eggs into that, it it's just, it's yeah. set up for failure. You know what I mean? Well, it's just it's, it can be punishing. Yeah, it can be very punishing. I mean, and then it still is. Like I, you know, I'm been close on a lot of roles re- recently that I'm like, oh, that will change my life. That will change my life. Mm-hmm. And, but you yeah. kind of gotta stop. I gotta stop thinking about that and just enjoy enjoy the process and know that like tomorrow I can work on Smartless or write or like you know do this with you. Mm-hmm. And then same for you or be with my kid on the weekend and not even think about it as much as possible, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Mike, this has been great, man. Um, thank you so much for making the time to chat with me. I'm, I'm honored to have you on my tiny podcast, especially considering you produce the, maybe the world's biggest podcast. Pretty soon. Uh, no, pretty yeah. soon. I mean, right around the corner. Um, you have a wonderful career uh, and a wonderful family. Um I'm so happy for you, and I wish you continued success and safety and good health to the fam. Thanks, Thanks man. Mike. You too, and I'd love to see you in, in person soon. We'll get our kids together and hang out. we got to do it. Yeah. Absolutely. It'd we'll be talk. great. Thanks, man. Well, there you have it. My conversation with Mike Terry. A big thanks again to Mike for doing it. I hope you all enjoyed it. Before we move on to our second interview, I'm going to take another opportunity to ask you all to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you're getting your podcast from today. We've got more incredible interviews with folks like Sufi Bradshaw, Beth Reisgraf, Susie Abramite, Darwin Shaw, and Gil McKinney coming in the next few weeks. Remember to subscribe to our Patreon to get all our extras with Chris Pine, Baron Vaughn, Joe Tippett, Sarah Paxton, Chantal Tui, Christine Woods, Patrick Adams, Leonard Robinson, and more. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash things are going great for me. And you can check out our link tree to get some of our merch. Our link tree is on our Instagram at things are going great for me. If you like what you hear so far, please give us those five-star ratings. Leave us a nice comment. We so appreciate all your ratings, reviews, and kind words. And we want to keep bringing you these great episodes. Next up is Reem Idan. She chats all things comedy, including being a college touring comedian and how she feels about the idea of being a fill-in-the-blank identity comedian. We also talk about her writing and her work in marketing for major entertainment companies. It's a great and informative chat. Here now is the super hardworking and super funny Reem Idan. When we chatted last, uh, you were headed to Burning Man. Is that right? Oh, yeah. I don't know if you can tell by my tan. I, I got burned at Burning Man. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I uh, just got back from Burning Man, I want to say a week ago, and then I immediately hit the road like the day after. So my oh mind my is still, 
I still don't know where I am. Like, it's, it's, I don't know what day it is. I do know, but I don't know if that makes sense. But yeah, you work perfect. incredibly hard from what I can tell. Yes. I, but now you, but funnily though, you do not strike me as the kind of person <laughs> that does like a lot of hallucinogens. Like, or are you? <laughs> Who said who said you have to do hallucinogens to go to Burning Man? This is you know my, I, well, I don't know. I've never been to Burning Man. You tell okay. me. You don't have I, to do them. Is that right? You don't know. They they even have AA meetings there. Listen, I'm a Burning Man oh, evangelist. That's cool. So if, if you want this podcast to be about Burning Man, we can I do. Talk I want it to be about whatever. Time. Yes, completely. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. So How if, many years you have you been going? This is my uh third year. I've attempted to go so many other times, but sometimes like People have weddings or, you know, the pandemic canceled the last two years. Um, this is my third time going. Um, but yeah, I describe Burning Man for people who don't know, know what it is or understand it uh, as a choose your own adventure book. Um, it's basically, someone described it this way recently, it's the internet in 4D. So anything you could possibly <laughs> imagine in the universe pretty good. within human capability or human reach exists at Burning Man and the level of human ingenuity to like create this temporary civilization in the middle of the desert for seven days is remarkable so like so yeah if you want to go do hallucinogenics in the desert go ahead that's no one's gonna judge you i mean mind you there are federal rules and federal officers and whatnot law enforcement there so like you can't just gallivate around doing drugs oh yeah oh it's very you still have to pretend that nobody is doing drugs while you're at burning man that seems no one Untenable. No one pretends anything, but there are opportunities to be caught if you're get an yourself idiot. in um, trouble. Okay. Yeah. So basically, like what Burning Man is, it's not a music festival. I'm sure, like that's usually what everyone hears. Like it's not a music festival. It's not. It's right. a, it's a civilization, a utopian society, a city of like seventy five thousand plus people that come together and exist in a week in this magical place in the desert. That's like very harsh. Um, to live in and to exist in but what happens is like it's this art festival where everybody contributes something to this this city the civilization and um, it re it challenges the way that you understand society civilization friendship interaction all that stuff to work because within this civilization there are rules or principles I should say one of them is decommodification which means money does not exist there um, and there's like this common misconception that there's a bartering system there. There's not a bartering system. Oh, it's that was my next question, right? Yeah. Okay. It's a gifting economy. So basically what happens is people get together and everybody, you buy your ticket, right? And then once you get there, money doesn't exist. And the only thing you can How buy is How much are the ice. tickets, by the way? It depends. They have like low income tickets. They have like the, the baseline ticket, which I believe is like four seventy five, five hundred bucks. And then they have uh, like the $1,200 plus ticket. And that's usually for like Silicon Valley people or people who can afford more or like last minute What, what does that sales. get them? Do you know what that gets them? What's Same the special? Thing. All it is, all it is is entry. And once you're there, there is no such thing as status. There's no VIPs. There's nothing. Everybody is the same okay. there. And that's part of, that's part of the process. So you go there um, and that's part of the decommodification too. It's like, okay, in a world where money doesn't exist, suddenly you're not a VIP anymore, right? You can't buy bottle service. You can't you can't separate yourself or distinguish yourself. In fact, like people don't even talk about their like uh, real lives or a lot of times people use fake names or not fake names, playa names, if you will, nicknames, because you're totally removing yourself from the idea of the person that you are in the default world and you're coming to this community and you're just existing and it completely shifts how you perceive yourself and the uh-huh. world. It's uh-huh. wild. So, um, so yeah, decommodification is one of the principles. Another one is like, um, radical self-reliance. So, 
Um, everything you need for a week to survive in the desert, you bring with you down to your water for showers down to like, they have porta potties and stuff, but like people you bring, bring their your own water paper. for shower, sh- showers, How? everything. How do you bring, I mean, you, what does that you, mean? You log it in or you lug it in. So, um, you, like, when I tell you, you need everything that you need to bring, you bring with you. Cause you can't leave. You can technically leave, but it's frowned upon. Um, but <laughs> what the fuck? it's wild. I'm telling what? you, it's so radical. Radical self-reliance. It's a principle. Now, I know it's also, been going on for a long time, this festival. And yeah. I, I mean, I, I know it's grown and grown and grown. It's not anything very new, but it has seemed to get, I think with the emergence of Instagram, it's become a lot more sort of visible as a thing that, yeah. you know, people like to do. Do children go? Do the people ever yeah, bring their, do, so children all are all ages. There's children there. There's infants. There's uh, elderly people there. Like, I think the median age is 45 at Burning Man. Um, that feels right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then another one of the principles. A lot of, a lot of people at midlife trying to figure out what the fuck did they do wrong. <laughs> 100%. Actually, interestingly enough, I decided at my very first burn in 2016 that I wanted to be a stand up comedian. And um, really? Interesting. that was one of my intentions going in. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah, you can party, yeah, whatever. But like, you usually set an intention. Mine was like, what do I want to do with my life? Um, do I want to do stand up? And then I left being like, you know what? Yeah, I want to do stand up. And now, six years later, I just went to the burn and I was like, I'm a full-time stand-up comedian. It happened. Like, it's crazy to see these markers of time. Um, but yeah, just kind of like sum it all up. You go there, there's like beautiful art. Another principle is like radical inclusion. So like, you know, like I said, all your titles and everything are stripped away and everybody wants you to be a part of this world and everybody is giving. And if everybody gives, everybody receives. So you'll be biking around through the playa and people will just give you like breakfast and mimosas or like they'll give you like a um there's a speaker series about like women's like rights or something like something and then you'll go and there's like a jewelry making class and you'll go and then there's like some crazy bizarre like workshop about i don't like bead bead flavored beading while flogging i don't know it's there's weird (laughs) stuff that goes on but it's really it's really cool and it really just it's it's a dynamic experience well, that's interesting that you that that's where you sort of made this, you know, decision that you were interested in going into stand up. And I know a little bit about your work background from mm-hmm. before you were in stand up. You know, you and I we originally met because um, I was co-producing a Middle Eastern themed comedy benefit for a wonderful organization called Miri's List, and you were gracious to come on and 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 do the show. You were brilliantly funny. Uh, and you've been funny on every show I've seen you on since. And <laughs> also, you know my old LA roommate, Bill Savage. I think from your yes. pre- from your previous job at Netflix and maybe a, a stand up class. I think he had. I just yeah. saw him yesterday and uh, said I was going to be speaking to you. And um, I guess you both took this. You worked on the same, maybe peripherally at Netflix, the sort of same team. And mm-hmm. then separately, you ended up in this sort of well-known stand-up comedy class here in the Valley, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Bill and I met. So, I, I went to Burning Man, and like right before I went, I take that I took that stand-up comedy class. And, um, uh, yeah, that's where I met Bill. And then uh, from that class, I started doing stand-up, like doing shows, started getting booked all over and then all over the world. And then yeah. um, kind of wow. tangentially, because my background is in marketing um, and then right. I, you know, took this, I kind of took the fork in the road to do comedy writing and um, stand up and content creation and stuff. It kind of organically emerged that I would write like copyright for entertainment brands and stuff. So Netflix was one of my, 
one of my gigs where I would write synopses for a lot of popular shows and, and whatnot. And that's where I was on like the little Netflix chat thing and Bill popped up and he was like, wait, you work here? I knew I recognized <laughs> your name. I was like, yeah, I've had so many random copywriting gigs. I currently copyright, I write all the memes for Tom and Jerry Twitter. I saw I, that on your bio. That random? It yeah. is so random, yeah. <laughs> also for, uh, for Scooby-Doo and Looney Tunes and a bunch of other random things. But, but that's gotta be a great side gig, right? Like So much fun. I watch cartoons as an adult. Are you kidding? And I get paid to do it. It's so much fun. That's awesome. Do they, do you, now do you get health benefits for that kind of stuff or is it mostly freelance? It's all freelance. Yeah. Okay. Pay, Netflix, uh, though, uh, if you're if you're in full time, benefits oh, are very nice. Amazing benefits. Yeah. No, I uh, I'm lucky to be self employed. Actually, no, I love being self employed. It's great. I mean, the health insurance part is a uh, shit show. It's so expensive. <laughs> it's so expensive. But whatever. Yeah. There's a trade off. So all right. So then let's go back a minute. So you're so you're born in the United States, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What what part? I was born in Fort Collins, Colorado. Right, you're from Colorado. Yes, I interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. And so then, is this right? So okay, I'm never going to pronounce this correctly, but you you moved to Bahrain for middle school. Correct. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Correct. Yes. And and you move the week before 9/11 happened here here in the United States. <laughs> yeah, isn't that wild? Which is a, a unique time to be moving to the Middle East. And and I heard you speak in an interview a little bit about living in the Middle East at that time and mm-hmm. suddenly feeling like it was your Americanness that was your kind of your liability is that right yeah 100% I think that's um you summarize it super well I think that's been my identity struggle most of my life you know I feel like a lot of people were either you know born in the United States and dealing with that as like a first generation kid or like you know Mm -hmm. or vice versa but for me it's like I experienced both sides of the spectrum (laughs) and like feeling like an outsider on both sides of the world and both cultures and even within my own religion I'm Muslim and I'm half Sunni and half Shiite. So I feel like a a lot of my comedy comes from that um, black sheep slash brown sheep experience of like feeling like being an American was my liability when like for most of my life I was like American, being American was my flashy like cool card where I was like, what's up guys? I'm from the United States. How are you? And they're like, go home, go back to your country. (laughs) I was like, no, but I'm also Iraqi help. Um, Yeah, it's a very unique perspective. Um, And I definitely, there was like a moment there where Right as, um, so like 9-11 happened and then like the um, Iraq-America war happened. Um, and I just felt like I was like, literally every which side of me is at war with each other. And like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I remember even going to like a protest once um, in Bahrain and it was like a protest against the war. And I, they were like mm-hmm. mad at the United States and they were like pro-Iraq. But then I was like, yeah, but I was like, but wait, I love the United States. Like it was, it was such a bizarre thing to deal with as a kid. Um, right. And I think... To a certain extent, like I've dealt with a lot of the struggle just through my stand up and my writing and stuff. But, you know, seeing a lot of people around me, even like my family, how they've internalized it or are working with it is very interesting. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, in my experience, it was like, a, you know, yours, yours much more profound. I think that for me, you know, it was a huge wake up call when that when 9-11 happened. I was living in New York. I, I heard one of the planes going over my dorm room. Oh, I actually whoa. woke up and heard it. And like you uh, heard the explosion. I didn't I don't know. No, I heard a low flying plane. I remember it was like, okay. I don't know, what was it, 8.30 in the morning? I woke up in my dorm. I was on Fifth Avenue, and I think it came, that plane came right down Fifth Avenue. I woke up, heard that, the sound of the plane, fell back asleep. I remember thinking, man, that sounds like a, that plane sounds low. 
Yeah. And and then woke up again to sirens. And we, you know, I was up above Washington Square Park, so quite a ways away. But you, but there were still you could hear sirens at the all, every window. And oh my gosh. I found myself very confused during that period of time and started to understand that uh, that you know for something so uh, horrible to happen uh, that there must be a lot of history that I need to know more about. Basically, sure, yeah. Did, did yeah, you, how, did, how, like... how did you feel? Because then you come back. Is this right? You come back to the states four years later, mm-hmm. completely changed the United States. Oh yeah. Oh my God. It was so different. I've, I've written about this a little too and just like pilots and stuff, but it's crazy because before I left, like growing up in like arguably like the whitest city in Colorado and like Colorado is already a pretty homogeneously white state. It didn't really matter mm-hmm. that I was brown. Like I remember like it didn't, it, being like Arab and Iraqi and stuff, like it didn't really matter. It was a cool thing. It was a cool like, oh yeah, I'm mm. a little different, but I never felt different. Right. Until I came back. And then, you know, and and I'm not sure, too, if maybe I sized it up in my head a little bit more because luckily enough, like I didn't I wasn't on like the receiving end of like a lot of like racism or anything like that. But it's also because I'm a little white passing. So like um, my brother, on the other hand, he he got a little bit more uh, racism. But in my mind, I was a lot more afraid of like what was going to happen than uh, maybe I needed to or. Um, but I do remember like when I first got back to the United States, I was like, oh my God, they're going to hate me for being Arab. I'm going to get like persecuted. Mm. So I'm just going to pretend I'm Mexican. And for like three weeks, I just like, (laughs) I just like pretended I was Chicana, which today in today's world I get is insensitive. I'm sorry, but it was like a survival tactic. I was like, this (laughs) this is a theme with other Middle Eastern friends of mine. I have heard this time and time again, you know, a Lebanese friend of mine, for example, in high school, who's, who's, and this is, uh, his dad told him. When you're in the state, when you go to college in the states, like go by an Italian name. Yeah. This was three years before September 11th. You know. Oh wow! Oh wow! Yeah, um, yeah. So for like a little bit, I like, talk like this, and it was a great. Um. <laughs> <laughs> um, the only but... thing about that that we can say is that it's like it, it, there has been a long history of, uh, I guess, in the film and television business, right, of yeah. uh, Latinx folks playing Middle Eastern people, right? That's true. That's true. Yeah, it this goes both my... ways. Yeah, this is retribution. Um, I've I've also dated Mexicans. I feel like it's okay. I've I've I've, I've made my amends. Um, but yeah, it was just it was so different. Suddenly, it mattered where you were from. Suddenly, people were asking the questions. You'd hear the comments. Like, I remember actually one time uh, we were at a gym. It was like my dad, my brother, my sister, and I. And uh, on the television screen, there was something about like the war or the Middle East or something. And I think it, was, it had to do with Iraq specifically. And the guy. Some like older white guy was like, "Yeah, nuke them, like kill them, kill all the blah blah blah." Right, right. And then my it was a very interesting moment where my dad like had a conversation with that man and was like, "Excuse me, sir, like you know, mm. we're Iraqi and um, it's a little that's brave. Um, it's so brave." And he brave and the way he approached yeah. it was was pretty awesome. He was like, you know, like it's tough for my kids to hear stuff like that, you know, because they're Iraqi American, and so you know, like right. when you say kill kill them all, like you know we're part of them and the shift in this man's attitude and demeanor was insane he was so apologetic but not in like a oh like my bad but like it truly I feel like my dad shifted this man's perspective by like personifying who the other side was yeah um and it was like little moments like that you know like over the course of the next few years because I ended up being in Colorado I think for like I don't know a handful more five six seven who knows more years uh, ended up going to university uh, there too. So 
it was just mm. it was an interesting evolution, but definitely so much different than when I was a kid. Yeah. There was a kind of a xenophobia right away here in the States. It was a it was a really weird uh, period of time. New York, though, you know, where I was living, there were a lot of protests right away. So I was sort of oh. I was I was waking up to protest culture, which was a new thing for me because what kind you know, of protests like against protests the war like, or protests against the war. A lot of folks yeah. in, in, in right away were like, we, we're not doing this again. You know, yeah. uh, we're not going into another country again. And um, so it was a real it was a real education uh, yeah. for me at the time. Um, so and then <laughs> so then you you after college, you end up going into marketing for a couple mm -hmm. of movie studios, right? Yeah. Yeah. What was interesting uh, to you about the movie business at that time? What was interesting to me? Uh, well, I've always loved entertainment. So again, looking back and like looking at my life and understanding like why I am the way that I am. Um, I really clung on to movies, especially growing up like across the world and, and back again, like entertainment movies, TV shows, like those were my sources of like American culture, even when I was so far away. Right. So like, mm -hmm. you know, like, being in the Middle East and like watching friends or, you know, watching movies <laughs> that came out like that to me was like right, right. my refuge and also like the way that I felt at home. Um, and so I always, and I was always like a natural person performer I was I was a fat kid so like I grew up being funny like I, that's just that's what you do um, <laughs> okay so, putting on skits and stuff being like oh, love me too um and so so yes yeah, so I always knew I wanted to work in entertainment um and then when I you know I graduated with a marketing degree and from the get-go I knew I wanted to work in film so I had like a bunch of film internships uh film marketing internships in college and then when I graduated immediately got a job at Paramount and then moved from there to Disney. And I, I think I had I had two internships at Disney while I was in college. Um, hmm. I remember like that was probably when my parents were most proud of my career. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> our, our daughter, she works at Disney. And like <laughs> I had them, I worked on the studio lot in, in uh, Burbank too, which is like, you know, like the OG lot. And there was like the building with the doors holding up. The oh yeah, the door, and, right, right. Oh yeah, my parents used to visit me on the lot all the time and they were just like beaming because that was like a pinnacle not even of American culture, but like globally, like, you know, everyone's like, wow, Disney, amazing. Um, that was fun. And then I, I went from there to a company called STX Entertainment, which was a startup mm -hmm. at the time. Um, but yeah, I, I did my little, did my little roundabouts in the, in the studio world before realizing I wanted to be in the movies and like, you know, on the other side of the carpet as opposed to like working on it. Yeah. Now you must've gotten some really good because then that means Disney, STX, Netflix. I think you worked for Paramount for a while. Is that right? Yeah. 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 So you, you, you're, you must've, I mean, do you have any insights in terms of you've seen the, this movie business and the streaming business really sort of uh, go through a lot of changes during your time mm -hmm. in marketing. Do you, do you have any insights about how streaming companies are looking, how do they develop audiences now or what has changed in terms of that? Do you know, do you, do you, yeah. Do you have takeaways I mean, on that? Interestingly enough, so at one point in my Disney career, because I moved around a little bit, um, I was working for global publicity for the in-home department. And so back then, that was DVDs. Um, right. Like things coming out to DVD and Blu-ray and whatnot. And they were just talking about a, a streaming platform called Disney Movies Anywhere, which is no longer a thing. Now it's hmm. the, uh, what are, what's Disney's thing called right now? Just Disney Plus? Disney Plus, there you go. Uh, so before Disney Plus, it was DMA, Disney Movies Anywhere, and I was there for the launch of that. So it was really interesting to see how, like, there was this huge shift from, like, you know, theater is king to, and, you know, DVDs are secondary to now, like, streaming is king. 
and theater is secondary. And I remember hearing rumors right, of it right. and people being like, no, it's never going to happen. You can't take away movie theaters. And then, you know, lo and behold, you know, the pandemic. Uh, pandemic pushed it a little bit. Really too. pushed it, yeah. Right. So, um, and, and your, your question was like, what streaming? How do they, platforms? were they talking about niche? For example, like, were they already talking about niche audiences where they were saying, okay, we're not a homogenous audience. Uh, yeah. You know, we're going to sort of look to find more success by like marketing to more specific groups of people, things like that. Yeah. I think with streamers, and this is from my experience, I don't know if somebody else is going to listen to this, like, moron. Um, but <laughs> I think streaming platforms have given um, content creators or, like, these, like, studios the ability to diversify, right? You know, previously it was mm. like, is this going to have mass appeal uh, if it's a broad, you know, uh, film or property? If not, it's going to be indie and it's not going to make that much money and et cetera, et cetera. But I think with streamers, and we saw this a little bit with Netflix in the beginning too, right? They were just There was just so much content and, you know, some of it was better and some of it wasn't. And there was that running joke of like, Netflix will buy it. Um, right, but I right. think it really enabled them to create content first and find an audience later. Uh, and I think that was a very unique hmm. shift, um, especially at my time like at STX, because it was a startup studio, I was able to like really see what goes on in distribution and how something is marketed to theaters and then, you know, to other platforms moving forward. Um, and I think, yeah, like streaming, streaming completely shifted that dynamic um, and then also too, like, and, and this is just like from, you know, friends who worked in the industry and things I've overheard. It's like, all right, you threw out the content, you start seeing who's watching it. And then you start to identify these niche audiences, right? Because mm-hmm. previously audiences were only ever, um, identified uniquely through race, class, um, interests and likes and stuff. Okay. But like with, with streaming platforms, because they're so interconnected, you start to build these like niche audiences and then, um, they're connected to other digital platforms like Facebook marketing and et cetera, et cetera. And now you can see like what other likes and interests these people have down to like what credit card, uh, what, what uh, purchases they're making on their credit cards. And then you can actually build this crazy 360 view of consumers. <laughs> this is the algorithm. It's the algorithm. I remember sitting in, in some meetings and them talking about that. They're like, yeah, you know, like our, our it was some vendor, they're like, We're, we can literally get, find the moviegoer through whatever, whatever, and then maybe through their AMC pass or something. And then we can like literally create this like backend profile and then we can see what they're purchasing, who's in their household, what their income is, what they're like, oh and they God. can build, and then they're likely to like recommend X amount of properties based on their purchase history and like what they're likely to be. Into. It was just crazy. So like <laughs> the level of data is, is wild. Um, and I think that's like uniquely, uh, uniquely available because of streaming, which is yeah. Cool. That's a, that's that's a that's a great answer, and I think like I, 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 you know, I think that you know, I wonder, I suppose, that there was a period in the beginning, in particular, where it was like, let's throw a lot of money at everything and see, yeah. just so that we can essentially, what you said, it's like collect the data, just throw anything out there, just so we can start to collect some data, and mm-hmm. now maybe it's becoming a little bit more sharp in terms of decision making and things like that. And I know you must be in pitch meetings a lot now because you've done some, uh, and I do want to talk about your standup, but you're, I also know that you're expanding into doing a lot of writing workshop programs. You've done them at uh, fellowships for, I think the one that you you have coming up is for Warner Brothers. Is that right? Yeah, that just started. It's Warner Brothers and uh, Rooster Teeth that started last week, which I'm really, really, really excited about. Thank you. Thank you. So so now you're going into, you're, you're, you've been pitching, I assume, or at least they're training you on how to pitch. And what are some of the insights there? I mean, are they talking about this algorithm or niche audiences and things like that? You know, it just happened. Um, The Warner Brothers one with Rooster Teeth is 
really unique in that it's content creator focused. It's like for digital creators. Um, they are going to talk about pitching. They're also talking about like podcasts and stuff. It's a very huge, a holistic overview of like everything that it takes production to development to execution wise of like content and interview format. Yeah. Um, I've done what else? I've done so many of them. I've done like the NBC late night writing one. I just yeah. finished the Disney one. It was, it was a Disney ABC talent showcase, but I was writing for them. Um, but do I have any, I have pitched my own TV show recently. Actually earlier this year, I was pitching the shows to networks, which was such a cool experience. Mind you, they yeah. didn't buy anything, but like, whatever. It was really fun. It was really fun to be in those rooms. Um, hashtag Zoom rooms, but, um, it's, it's going to happen though. It's going to happen. Yeah. It's going to happen. I'm not, I'm, I'm chilling. And um, that would be a show that you would be the lead in, right? You know, interestingly enough, that one, I was not the lead in. And I think that was like, that was yeah. my main, uh, that was my main feedback was like, we love this. It's a great show, but like we want you to be in it. And I, this mm. this show was um, it was a little bit of my uh, my life story, kind of what we talked about earlier in the podcast today, which was like moving across you know uh, the world and then coming back to yeah. the United States. So it was it was a younger version of me, um, but I was like it was a high school kid. I was like I can't. I'll be the I'll play the guy. The teacher. Counselor. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I was like uh-huh. I'll be like the the shit show guidance counselor who's <laughs> giving bad advice left and right. Um, but it was oh my god my uh. A, it was a really cool experience. B, I was so grateful to just, like, even, like, tell my dad. I was like, I'm pitching my new man today. Um, yeah. But I would say, like, my main um, learnings advice is to have a why. So, like, you know, tell your mm. story, talk about your characters and stuff. But, like, it should be so personal to you and have – and so there needs to be a need for this piece of mm-hmm. content out in the world because I think that's what people latch on to. It's, yeah. you know, every, everybody can write a character or a story or a, a podcast pitch or whatever it is, but if you have a reason and, like, a strong why um, and it's just so authentic to you, I think that's what people are buying. They're buying you. They're not – yeah, they're buying the content and, and, and the piece, but they're really, like, investing in you as the creator um, because eventually they'll, they'll, they'll match you up with people and, and you know, yeah. put their own twist on it. But if, as long as, like, it's something that's so – precious to you in particular to you I think they can like work with that and move it forward yeah absolutely that you've heard I mean I feel like there was on it's like that Pete Holmes show I remember there was a scene where he's at the cellar and he's trying to impress the 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 lady there who's in charge of picking people what is her do you know what her name is she's famous is it isn't it uh is it Estelle Estelle? okay we're gonna get get in comedy trouble for that um (laughs) But Let's I think, uh, yeah, we'll cut it. <laughs> There's that scene, though, where he's, you know, she says to him, like, who are you, why are you, and why now? Mm-hmm. I and love he's that like, show. I'm a tall white guy and a Catholic. <laughs> and apparently HBO was like, that's what we, right now, that's what we, I love Pete Holmes. That's so funny. I love that guy. Um, yeah. And have never met him, but I, I look forward to it. I grew up sort of close Same. to where he grew up in my uh, time in Massachusetts. He was, grew up in Lexington, Mass, and I grew up in uh, Concord, which is sort of right mm-hmm. next door. But anyway, yes. so, all right. So then you start doing comedy more exclusively around 2016, which is an interesting time for it because yeah. Donald Trump is basically, at the time, like going through the greatest hits of American racism in order to... <laughs> That's a funny quote. <laughs> in in order to develop hits. his base, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. it, this is the most cynical, dangerous presidential campaign in recent history. And we've got the entire racist panoply of Mexicans are taking our jobs, the anti-Semitism of saying certain politicians have, quote, New York values. Wow. You've got the flat-out white replacement theory and then the healthy dollop of 
Middle Eastern sleeper cells are crossing the mm-hmm. Mexican border in caravans. <laughs> and then what around if all true. <laughs> what if we're what if we're like, I just think it's like <laughs> talk about throwing stuff at the wall. He's just trying yeah. he's just you know what what's going to stick, you know? Mm-hmm. And around this time you put a sketch on YouTube called I'm Muslim unless <laughs> Trump gets elected. Yeah. That was actually my first stand-up performance ever. Like that was my first show, and we recorded. It was it was a showcase for the class that I did. Yeah, and it was called a Muslim unless Trump gets elected. Um, so yeah. literally, the thing that you did at Haha's becomes uh-huh. this viral video. It went viral, and I literally I've since taken it down because you know now I'm a professional comedian, and I'm like, ah, oh, this is outdated. You know, I don't want someone to to look me up and have like my, my first set. Your old, first your first thing. set. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I've since, but it still exists on the internet. I'm sure. Um, yeah. But yeah, isn't that crazy? It went viral. I got booked around the world because of that. That one clip. Incredible. Yeah. yeah. That answers the question, why you and why now? You know what I mean? It's like oh, if you're 100%. getting booked off of a stand-up set that you did somewhere in the Valley that goes viral, it's like that's – that. it must have told – and what, what does it tell you also about like – what do you feel like it tells you or told you about what was happening in the culture? What did it tell you about attitudes both in the U.S. and beyond about anti-Muslim racism? You mean the performance of the video? Yeah, like at that time specifically. Well, I don't want to say I don't read comments because I, I mean, I, I glaze. I don't really read comments, to be honest. And at that point, I was like, ooh, let me see. Some of the comments were like, this whore, she is out here with her short skirt. And then some comments were uh, like, this okay. is amazing. So, I mean, it was, yeah. it was very diverse in the comments and whatnot. Um, but kind of, I'm going to answer your question backwards in a sense because okay. I think... When I started stand-up, I did not intend to talk about being Arab or Muslim or any of that stuff because I did not want to pigeonhole myself. Also, like, mm, right. that's not the stuff I talk about mostly in my life. I mean, like, in this podcast, like, I've done a lot of soul-searching over the years. And so, like, this is now, you know, I'm very comfortable talking about this stuff because this is who I am and it is my why now. And, and that's something I've come to terms with. Mm-hmm. But yeah, at that point, looking back, you know, like, I, I've always... I've never been super Arab or super Muslim. Like, you know, I've always right, been right, like right. that in-between kid who's a chameleon and whatnot. And so going to that stand-up comedy class, I did not want to talk about, I mean, I didn't say no to it, but I was like, I'm going to talk about weight loss. I'm going to talk about this and I'm going to talk about that. And um, just because of the sociopolitical uh, climate at that time, I was forced to talk about it. And not, not like somebody made me, but it's just, it, I couldn't yeah. not talk about it and like and then it suddenly right. had to do with me so it was like and so that in my interesting way I became a um how do I how do I say this not something stupid like I became a voice for what was going on at that time if that mm-hmm. makes sense it wasn't really about how my video did it was like what I was what what content was coming through me as like a vessel for what was going on in the world especially because it's not what I wanted to talk about, but like that's, so what you hear in that video is like me talking about like the Muslim ban and like the stupid ideas of like 72 virgins and like all these other things that, that was what people were talking about. And that's what naturally like uh, presented itself in my video. And then since then in my career, like now, you know, a good like 60% of what I talk about has to do with my identity and my parents and my uh, religion Mm. or, or like commenting on being Arab American and stuff um, because of, starting at that very specific time. Yeah, but also feeling free to expand into like, I was just talking to another comedian yesterday and we were saying, they said something about, they didn't 
you know, they don't, they didn't want to be identity comedian. Yeah. Yeah. You know, same, same. Yeah. I don't want to be like, I want to be, and I, and I've been doing a lot better about this since the pandemic, because in the beginning I, I kind of just fell into that and it was a comfortable space for me to just keep talking about what made me different. And it kept getting me booked. Like it kept, mm-hmm. I, I found a niche and um, not even necessarily a niche, but I found something that made me different just by being who I was. And so um, it worked for me until I was like, I need to elevate. Like I need to expand and be the person who I am in real life on stage as opposed to, cause I don't just walk around my house talking about being Arab. Like, you know, I, I talk about a lot, I'm a lot funnier in my perspective. Like when I meet people and talk about random things and whatnot. So, yeah. and the pandemic forced me to expand and start talking about COVID and then like my life with that. And then other things and relationships and other stuff outside of that. Um, but yeah. Right. That, yeah, I was just talking to my wife about this the other day because I just went back and did the, the Burbank Comedy Festival again. And it was like, I hadn't nice. done stand-up in two and a half years. I had to stay away because, you know, I got two little kids and I can't be going into the... I don't know how much I'm going to be able to do it, you know. I mean, I'm starting to feel a little more comfortable. Had a nice. great time doing the festival. But I like I had all these COVID jokes for yeah. like two and a half years that I either tweeted out or whatever. And it's like, I just was like, I didn't know what to do. So I did just all brand new material. Almost had a panic attack, by the way. Oh, the I love that. The first set How that I it? did. It was good. I, I, it, all the jokes worked. And it was just that right. thing of like, what people tell you, like never do all new material. Uh, yeah. So I had like my opener and my closer were, were old jokes. Everything in between was new. It was all stuff that I knew like had, you know, mildly done okay on like, tw- like a few people thought were funny on Twitter. So I, nice. I did those and yeah. it was, it was very cathartic, you know? And I think like one of the things I was talking about is like the COVID is a thing that first of all is, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, seriousness to human life is a much larger event, I would say, maybe not culturally significant to the U.S., mm. but then the 9-11. And we, in fact, we remember people saying like this, this many, this day was this many 9-11s worth of people dying. Oh, and yeah. so there, they, but we've had no sense of real like uh, mourning as a nation, we haven't had a moment of coming together the way that we had a moment like that after 9-11. And so it's, it's, it, it exists in this, COVID exists in this weird, like it's ongoing. Mm-hmm. Where is the moment, except for those moments along the way that were like, how many people died in one day? Or, you know, there'd be a headline oh, yeah. in the New York Times or something, you know? So I do feel like comedians have found a lot there to mine for the collective experience and, and sort of releasing of the tension of what's been going on. It yeah. doesn't seem to have that same kind of like, you shouldn't go there, but maybe it yeah. will eventually. Maybe eventually people will maybe. say, don't do those jokes. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I've um, I've started cutting out my COVID material. It, it just feels it feels dated already. To be honest with you, like I right, have. Right. Probably... That's you know I think that's why I think it worked for me. I'd been away for that amount of time. I think everybody at this festival decided that it was already hack. So I came in, mm-hmm. and I think the audience was like, "We do want it. We do still want to hear about this because it's yeah. the thing we all have been in together." I but I but I agree. I had that I had that thought too. I was like, I'm sure everybody else has kind of moved on because I just no, haven't been doing it. I, I don't think so. I mean, I I went to a bunch of uh, shows during Netflix as a joke, and everybody mentioned COVID in some capacity. Um, what I personally, when I started cutting out my material, is because the observations at the time I made those jokes, the observations and like the the world was different. So right, right. I you know I was cut, I had to cut out a joke about um. Uh, like weddings being canceled and stuff like that, which was funny, like for the first year, because I'm like, oh my God, quarantine happened at the best time. It happened during wedding season. Oh my God. And I got to talk about that. But mm. then I was like, yeah, but it's two and a half years later. Like 
no one really remembers when quarantine started, right? So, like, that, that's why I cut the joke. Or I, like, right, I, right. what used to be, like, four jokes, I consolidated into one because I was, like, I had to cut the time out of it, et cetera, et cetera. So, right. no, I think, I think it's still a point of um, communal reference, definitely. But um, it just doesn't, it's not as novelty anymore. In the beginning, it's, mm-hmm. like, we were making observations about this, this, and that. My, my favorite joke, though, to date is I talk about, like, the joke is... Um, can we all agree that the pandemic would have lasted less if we could just figure out how to social distance, right? But the problem is no one understands what six feet looks like because of all the five foot ten guys that lied. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's still relevant. That's still funny. You know what I mean? Like, it's, like that's that just a such lot. a good punchline. Um, yeah, But, great. yeah. And then I talk about, you know, remember the beginning of the pandemic, da-da-da-da-da. But, yeah, I consolidated what used to be, like, a good 30 minutes to 10. Um, now, you, I, you know, I've heard you talk about how much time you have as a comedian. And, you know, like, I, I don't, you know, I, I would say, I don't even know how much time I have I, that is a consistent, like, like people call it, like the old fashioned thing, like your act or whatever. But I know oh, that yeah. you, you, you've said that you can go up to doing about an hour, you said, or maybe more. Yeah, more yeah. than an hour. Um, I mean, if you really put together everything I've ever written, it, it might be like two but mm-hmm. like I've, I've since you know i'm six years and i've chopped the, you have to cut things. a lot like yeah i've cut things along the way right now like i just got back from doing um two back-to-back shows one in utah and one in new york oh my god this was after burning man mind you i literally got back from burning man had one day to unpack and then was like on the road the next day i'm so mind jumbled right now um and uh yeah i did like 45 to an hour there it depends i've never too, done that it, I, oh, I cannot imagine sure. doing that. I remember, like, because when I did my first joke in a five-minute set for the festival, they were like, I did the first joke, people laughed, and I started to go inward because my that voice in your head, <laughs> my, that voice just was like, you're never getting through the rest of this. That's so funny. Even though you got the laugh? Even though I got the, it, yeah, the voice was like, oh, you thought, you think you're cute? You know, this, <laughs> this is going to be a disaster. You think you're cute? Yeah, and I think, like, so, you know, the only reason that I got through it is because my mouth knew it. Because I had run That's it same. so many times that my the yeah. muscles of my mouth just kept mawing and jawing through it. That's what you got to do. That's what you got to do. Yeah, that's what my question was going to be for you. Because you got to do, if you're doing 45 minutes to an hour, that is like, that's doing a, that's like a one-person show on Broadway. It's like, you've got to prepare for that, I would assume, like you're preparing for a play. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, that's, that's if you're a good person. I'm not a good person. So I'm like, <laughs> yes, you prepare. I mean, do I prepare as much as I tell myself I'm going to? No. no. It's always me on the plane, like frantically, like told myself I would do this. Yeah. yeah. Why always. did I make and, uh, myself do that? It's why, so much of that with stand up. Why did I make I told myself, myself do this? Why, I told myself, I was like, I'm going to Utah state, uh, in, at the end of the month. Was it? No, I was like, okay, I'm going to Utah state beginning of next month. So that means I have one month to write. A new hour. Because uh, oh I was like, I'm going to write a new hour. I don't know. Do you know what I wrote? I wrote about three minutes. Um, and I <laughs> did I prepare? No. No, I did not. Not until I was on the plane. Not until I was on the plane. Until I was in like the hotel room the morning of just like, oh try, writing notes. And I was... Because honestly, like people ask me if I have stage fright. Absolutely not. I love being on stage. The only yeah. thing I'm ever afraid of is forgetting everything I've ever said. And being like... Ugh. And it happens. But I will say like, um, I've learned... <laughs> And I've been so much more successful the more I've just, like, kind of known what I was going to talk about and, like, had a, a had a script, quote-unquote, or, like, a set list, but then just gone off the rails and, like, done crowd work and talked to people. And that's usually, like, as of late, too, it's been, like, my best shows, like, just having fun and, and talking. And, and, and then when I feel like, okay, back to the script, defaulting to those muscle memory jokes where I'm, like, 
Literally, like, my mouth is moving as I'm thinking about what the next joke is. As I'm thinking about how to tie it back in. That's an incredible skill. And I don't, you know, and I like having, I've hosted shows before where it's, you know, uh, like the show that you did or other shows where it's like a sort of a a half improv, half uh, stand-up shows and got very used to just jumping up and talking to audiences. But it's been a while and it's such a a muscle, right? That you just have to keep exercising all the time. I was nervous too because I was like, I've been gone at Burning Man. I didn't do stand-up like, I was sick the week before Burning Man. Right. Um, So I hadn't done stand-up in like two or three weeks and then I had to go up and do an hour. (laughs) I was like, yeah. Yeah, but a part of that I will say too, a part of me doing well was getting out of the script, like, you know, having been like, because you you, st- you tend to fall into patterns of behavior and thinking even about yourself or about your material and stuff mm-hmm. and stepping away for so long, mind you, while I was like mad at myself for doing it and being like, I'm not a good person. I'm a horrible comedian. Stepping away for so long and being forced into something, I think started reworking the wires in my brain. And mm. um, I've even said my intention this year at Burning Man to just tie it all back together was to refine my voice because you know, like, like I said, I'm six years in. This is my job now. Like, um, mm-hmm. but I've, I kind of have gotten into a familiar pattern, and you know, whatever. And so I'm trying to like elevate and continue to grow and and be the a better version of myself. Be like Reem 2.0 and and talk about and and finally, you know, talk about more and more things and really bring in my true life persona and personality on stage. Um, and yeah. I feel like I I did accomplish that. Ironically enough, by not doing stand up for a little bit of time, having conversations about right. it, making new experiences, and um, and then and that you know led me into those two shows that I talked about, and I kind of just you know I had that 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 uh, script from previous shows and whatever, but then I kind of just was like me and didn't care, and that's where the magic happened. Right. Yeah, that's awesome. That's so exciting to hear. Yeah. Um, well, great. And then I heard that it, you you were talking about in another interview that you have started. Uh, or you're taking acting classes these days. Is that right? Yeah, How's I that? am taking acting classes. So I'm, tell me I'm about that. How's that going? hyphen it. Oh, <laughs> um, acting class. Uh, it's been going good. I, I'm, I'm about to get into another one because they go every like few months and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But um, acting has been, it's a lot more challenging than I thought it was. And I like grew up doing like, you know, acting for fun or like doing like small plays or, you know, I act from my own TikTok and stuff. But it's much different <laughs> when you have to interpret somebody else's text and then find a way to layer it and stuff. Like Hmm. that's something I've actually kind of struggled with too is, is I've written things for other actors and it's just, it's so different for me to like act what somebody else wrote as opposed to like what I wrote when I write it or like when I know what it is, great. I'm a good actor. I'm an amazing actor. But then when it's like, especially these auditions, I'm like, I just, I feel like I always get it wrong, you know? Like, sometimes it's really nice to have an acting coach be like, okay, so you're looking at the wrong thing. This is actually what they mean. It becomes like an AP Lit class. I'm like, how did this happen? I thought this... <laughs> what do you mean? Like, the subtext of what a character... The subtext, like... yeah. Oh, and it, also, right. as a comedian first, I often tend to act for the joke. Like, I'm like, da-da-da-da. Uh, as opposed right. to right. being the actor in their natural world. You know, like, you're the character living their mm-hmm. life. You're not a character telling a joke. Right. So like that's that was something I had to learn to do was like stop acting for the joke and just like be um yeah. as the character, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think it does also it comes back down to the why. Like yeah. we were talking about earlier, you know, that seems to be one of the most important things with acting is like what is the why of the character? If you, because if you follow that, we'll follow you. Yeah, exactly. Um uh well that sounds do you exciting. Act? I do. Yeah, that's more so what I do. 
Like I Honest. was, you know, comedy for me is something that I do because I, there's not enough time. I'm not busy enough acting. Yeah. So, you know, and, you know, I'm one of those people, I think that for a long time I would just do things and people would laugh. Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, what's funny? You know, <laughs> they were just like, you're funny, you know, and they're like, oh, it, you know, or, or, and certainly there's like moments where I was like, I'm, I, oh, I think I'm so funny. But I think, you know, I started doing, I took it, my originally, I took like a stand up class with Lewis Black back in um, years ago when I was like 20 years old. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he was nice to me. He was like, you're, you're, you're funny. I just then didn't do the thing that like you've done now, which is like go on the road or, and you know, somebody that I knew around that time was Baron Vaughn. I, I was, I knew Baron, I met Baron for the first time when I was like 23 living in New York after college. And Baron, I think had started already while he was in college in Boston nice. doing the scene. Mm-hmm. And then he was doing colleges, which you do. Mm-hmm. He was doing that right away. I never did any of that. I, I thought to myself, I was like, I'm fancy. I got a little BFA. I don't know. You know, I'm going to I'm going to work or whatever. And then it's been a struggle the whole time. But I think that, you know, but with comedy, it's just been a thing that has been has given me so much joy uh, over the over the years and, and being around comedians. And I got to say, interviewing comedians, oftentimes it's a lot more fun because <laughs> comics have stuff to say regardless of whether or not it's gonna necessarily help them with a job (laughs) comics can keep a conversation going i've talked to people not not for interviews sometimes but like they just cannot keep conversations going i have to sit there and be the rudder and the engine and like "Mm," you know because we're natural Mm -hmm. conversationalists and people pleasers and etc etc but yeah we don't like we we don't like silence we hate silence. And I just have been in so many situations where I'm like, why do I sign up for these social gatherings where I have to work? Just to sit there and be like, so what are you, okay, and what are your thoughts on the color green? Like, I don't, oh, like say something. Uh-huh. Have an opinion. Have an opinion. Right. Yeah. And small talk is the thing I'm not good at either. I get right yeah. into it. I do this when I'm at a, I've been saying this a lot this season, but it's like, it's because a few people have been like, well, why are you doing the podcast? And I'm like, because I do this when I'm out at a, a kid's birthday party <laughs> and I'm talking to somebody's dad or mom, and it's like, you know, I'll go right for like, where were you born, and where? It's like, what, what's the thing that you care about? And uh, you know, oftentimes when it's I like, say Jesus, what does that mean to you? Right? Yeah. So, totally. what religion are you? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Why? So this gives me a forum where I get to, you know, ask questions in a way that feels like hopefully a little less like, uh, or a little more feels a little more appropriate. But, yeah, um, well, I'm excited for your acting journey. I'm excited for all of it. I, uh, well, finally, where can people find you online? Oh, I'm on everything. Instagram, TikTok, Twitter at Reem Edan, R-E-E-M-E-D-A-N. Nice. Mm-hmm. Well, Reem, thank you so much for chatting with me. Uh, mm-hmm. Always great to see you. Um, yeah, you too. Hugely talented comedian. I'm, on, I'm also completely in awe of your work ethic. Uh, even, if you, even if you think you're a procrastinator, you are very, you're busy all the time. And, Thank you. Uh, oh, no, I'm I a deep procrastinator. I'm busy, but I make sure it's like right in that like fire moment where it's, you know. Fight or flight moment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm happy whenever we run into each other and get to catch up. Uh, and I wish you continued success and good vibes. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. I wish you all the success as well. And get up, go do more stand-up, dude. You can do it. I would like to. Dum, 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 dum. 
If you listened all the way to the end of this episode, hey, thank you very much. Hey, listen, since you stuck around with us, why not go ahead and give us a subscribe? Or perhaps a sweet, sweet five-star rating. A nice comment. And we'll return the favor by bringing you even more quality conversation in the future. You can check out our Patreon and our swag for more ways to support the pod. You can find both in our Instagram handle, at things are going great for me. Stay tuned because we've got just three episodes left in season three, premiering every Wednesday, including interviews with Sufi Bradshaw, Beth Reisgraf, Susie Abramite, Darwin Shaw, and Gil McKinney, to name more than a few. Our sound engineer is Christopher Frontiero, and our series composer is Cormac Bluestone. Our graphics editors are Sierra Hauser and Leon Simone. All right, for you truly thorough listeners, here's a secret. I threw my back out the other day, (laughs) so I've got a lot of pain in my lower back that I'm pushing through. I think it's a manifestation of of end-of-the-year stress, but also probably carrying around two kids that are getting bigger and heavier every day. And maybe I'm just an old man, and sometimes my body gets hurt because I looked up from my computer too fast. I'll never know. But I'm grateful for the kids. I'm even grateful to get old. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Make sure to rewatch Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. See you next time.